From the Canoe West Media Studio on the shores of beautiful Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada, it is May 2016, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal, except for this intro. Today at the roundtable, the virtual roundtable, afforded through the magic of the internet, we have Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks, both in Australia. Shirley, Brian, hello. Good morning. Hi, everyone. We have Grant Johnson and Susan Johnson in British Columbia, Canada. And we're here enjoying the beautiful sunny weather we've got. Yes, it's lovely here. Uh, I hate to say it because I know everyone else is getting bad weather, but it's wonderful. Yeah, it seems like it, doesn't it? And then we have Sam Manicom in the UK. Hi, everybody. It's a beautiful evening here. Now, we also, well, Susan is, is one of our special guests. We also have another special guest. We have Renee Cormier. Renee is in British Columbia. Renee? Hello, everyone. Thank you for letting me join your party. So Susan, for those who don't know, is the co-founder of Horizons Unlimited and uh, is the better half of the the Johnson family there. Sorry, Grant. (laughs) And Susan, it's great to have you on Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Thank you. It's great to be here. I I do listen most of the time to the show and uh, while Grant's taping as well, but it's nice to be able to pipe in. (laughs) Rene is a a motorcycle adventurer. He's written a book called University of Gravel Roads. We had Rene on the show quite some time ago. And uh, Rene, you're running a company called Renadian Adventures. Yeah, we're just trying to avoid the working world by taking people on motorcycle trips. It's a good way to do it, isn't it? (laughs) To avoid the the hassle of getting a real job. We're trying. (laughs) And, and tell us a little bit about your company. We do small small tours in Southern Africa is where we spend most of our time. We're there for half the year. Uh, we've started riding in Mongolia now. We've been there for two years now. And uh, this winter we'll be in South America poking our nose for an eventual addition to the to the stable for, for South America. But that'll, that'll be about it. Small number of uh, fun trips. What do you do? You're, you're in Canada part of the time then? We're basically in Canada for the first six months of the year, and uh, in July we we fly to Mongolia. The whole family goes. My wife, um, who's South African, and the two boys, uh, who seven months actually eight months and three and a half years old, and we'll we'll be there for three weeks. Then we fly to South Africa for four months, and then we to South America for one month, and then we return to Canada for New Year's Eve. Wow, that is busy. If I recall, when we talked last, you told me that you were each allowed one suitcase full of stuff. And if something came in, something had to go. Is that still the case? That's still the case. And my suitcase is shrinking in size because, of course, there's another mouth to feed. So I lose out. And, uh, but that's fine. But it's, it's still the case. And I think that the kids are learning some, some pretty important traveling lessons with that. I'll bet. Well, that that should play in well today because we're going to talk about uh, a little bit about uh, traveling or taking your stuff with you um, when it comes to laptops. And uh, I'm sure you're going to have some input there. So we've got some topics set out for today. And I think the first one we're going to cover is, uh, we call it, doing it with your partner. That's that's not my title. That's the Rick's. And I'm going to let, <laughs> I, I'm going to let Shirley pick this one up um, because this was uh, her and Brian that came up with this one. Well, when we travel, as everyone knows, we travel together. We travel on one motorcycle and we've met lots of people on the road who um, guys traveling on their own and they either have a partner at home who is probably working very hard and funding part of their, uh, their trip or they would like to travel with someone or um, they've had their partner traveling with them and it didn't pan out so their partner has gone back to 
to, to back to home, back to work, back to normal life. And um, or, a lot or, of people are very lonely on the roads. Yeah, or, or that. Yeah, that's right. They've been travelling with their partner and it hasn't panned out well at all, and they've ended up um, parting ways permanently, not just for the time, the duration of the trip. So that's what we wanted to talk about: whether whether with the pros and cons of travelling with a partner. Well, just with what you just said right there about travelling with a partner and it didn't work out, I wonder if it would be wise for the person that owns a motorcycle to own that second helmet so you could keep it if it didn't work out with your partner. <laughs> we did uh, we did travel with a, a friend in um, Scandinavia last year who for a period of time travelled with a spare helmet just in case he met someone on the road that would like to join him on his journey um, he didn't on that occasion, but uh, we heard that recently he was travelling in Mexico and met a girl who had her own helmet and she travelled with him for a couple of weeks. Wow. So, you know, the first thing we could talk about is, is it worth it carrying a helmet? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, if you like the person that much, just go and buy one. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and what size of the helmet would you bring? That's exactly. True. Well, that could predict who you're going to pick up, though, couldn't That's it? That's what I think. <laughs> It'd be like um, the the golden uh, the golden slipper in in exactly. fairy tales. You could only come yeah. travelling if the helmet fitted. Well, first of all, the pros and cons really of, of riding with with two up or with one. I, I know for me, and I haven't done a lot a lot of long distance stuff or any long real long distance stuff with two up. But for me, there's I love it because I have a second person to share my experience with. But on the other hand, it does sort of cut into my personal riding style somewhat. And I'm curious what Brian thinks about that. Yeah, look, I I, um, I love riding solo and going a bit hard sometimes, but uh, when you're on a long journey, you really want to share it with someone, and uh, that's the way I feel about it. And, uh, yeah, there are um, cons in relation to weight and riding the bike in a different style and uh, even parking the bike can be a problem. And I know with the big GS, surely as uh, time goes on and, you're getting on and off the bike, it gets hard and heavy and all those sorts of things. But uh, you learn, um, as I'm sure Renee can uh, attest to, that you learn to live with uh, less luggage. And um, if Renee has any more kids, he'll be down to a loincloth soon. He's got to pack into two suitcases. But, um, you know, we, we manage with our, uh, our packing, uh, although I do uh, concede the big pannier to Shirley. So there's, there's those sorts of things uh, that you've got to consider. And with the riding style, Jim, if Brian has a brain fade and forgets that he has his dear lady wife on the back of the bike, the kidney punch, I find, is a very, very good way of reminding him that he is not riding solo. I always feel sorry for Brian's kidneys, really. <laughs> oh, I just think they've got excellent that. communication skills. <laughs> <laughs> I've had to have scans on my right kidney. <laughs> Well, Grant and Susan, you guys have ridden lots two up. Primarily two up. Virtually well, all of our riding since we met has been two up. It's hardly ever that we that I go out solo. Susan you, always wants to go. Let's go for a ride. And, and do you find once you're used ride. to it, you're used to it, right? I mean, that's how you ride with a person on the back. That's how the bike feels, uh, the, the weight, the whole bit. The bike's normal with Susan on the back. It's extremely light and nimble when she's not and it's it's kind of unusual and weird i have to reconfigure my brain to it susan do you ever find that you'd rather ride the bike no no No. i've never uh, in all the years that we've been together which is over 30 now um never had an urge to ride the bike myself 
Um, I mean, Grant is a superb writer and always has been and has been lots of experience. And so uh, this way I get to relax. I get to read or, you know, sightsee or sleep, all kinds of things one can do on the back of a bike. Um, and with the new bike, I actually have a, a bit of more height so I can see um, pretty pretty well over top of him, whereas the old one was kind of like look to the side. Well, the <laughs> so, new bike is, what is this, a Harley? Uh, no, <laughs> no, it's it's a twelve hundred GSA, and uh, and they've decided that the rear, the seat uh, for the passenger can actually be a couple of inches taller than uh, than the old one was. So that's great. And are you guys, like I, I've seen? Well, for those of who don't know your story, how many miles have you guys ridden together? Oh, that's a really hmm. good question. Don't know. I, I just count countries. It's been about I don't know between forty and fifty countries. So nothing like you know some people's, but uh, long time. You, you guys were on the road. How long traveling around the world? Altogether three years, but in nine months, and then three months, and then two years full time. Right. So that's a, that's a lot of riding together on a bike. Oh yeah, I love that line that I, I actually heard Shirley say that Brian conce- or Brian said, sorry, conceding the big pannier to Shirley. And I'm like, what? He's always what? whining about that. <laughs> Not to <laughs> happen. What? <laughs> I thought you would have sorted that already, Susan, with oh. the GS. <laughs> <laughs> so are you saying in that that you get the small pannier? I don't get a pannier. What? What? I don't have a pannier of my own. We've never had that concept. It's like, no, no, I get a, I get, you know, a couple of clothing bags, um, in total. Um, and I share everything else really. Dear, oh dear. Shirley? Oh no. Susan and I, (laughs) secret women's business, Susan, you and I need to talk about this. (laughs) Well, it reminds me of a, of a story from Peter and Kay Forward. Uh, Peter was, you know, describing their packing style and he referred to, um, the one pannier as being Kay's pannier. And then he opened up to show what was in Kay's pannier, and in in Kay's pannier was a car battery. <laughs> like, how is that Kay's pannier? <laughs> Clearly, it was her battery. <laughs> that's fair. That's Shirley, Shirley has the tire pliers and the computer, so that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of ours is packed kind of logical stuff. Technical tends to be more on the right pannier. Clothing tends to be more on the left. Um, depends on where the heat of the exhaust is and what, uh, you don't want to put the exhaust pipe stuff or anything that's near the exhaust pipe that's going to be delicate technical stuff. So clothing can go right beside the exhaust pipe just fine. So that's kind of the way we work it out. And also very important to us is the stuff that's at the top of each pannier is stuff we might want to use suddenly quickly, like rain gear goes at the top of the panniers. Yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense. See, it's all logical. It's nothing to do with his and hers. No, it's oh, shared. Yes. We're very, very much a team. Sam, we haven't I, heard from you on this. Oh, well, I was just sitting here thinking, do you know, I, I'm not quite sure where you put your evening gear. I mean, I've got to have my dinner jacket. My dinner <laughs> it's just not proper overlanding without. <laughs> Terribly British, Sam. <laughs> oh, I was just thinking about Ted Simon and um, people like that, you know, when they set off and they were they were traveling with, with gear like that. But, um, yeah, I mean... Uh, I've never traveled any um, significant different distance with um, anybody on the back of my bike. Birgit joined me for three months in India and Nepal, um, and she bought her own helmet out. Um, 
And I had bigger panniers made and got rid of a whole load of gear um, to be able to do that. But um, it, it wasn't really that much of a problem. I mean, um, I don't usually need to carry 10 pairs of socks or that sort of stuff, although I do admit to setting off with seven pairs of socks, but I do have a foot fetish, so I suppose that had something to do with it. Um, but, but Sam, but, did you find it limited where you went? Um, no, not really. And that trip was really important three months for us because, you know, we'd got to know each other in New Zealand for a few weeks and uh, we didn't know whether we could travel together um, and we didn't know how many matching interests we had. We didn't know whether we had the same sort of pace of travel um, and we didn't know how well we were going to be able to communicate and to us those things were absolutely key about um, travelling together. I mean, as it happened, um, we got on so well, I said to Birgit, look, I'm going to South America, would you like to come with me? And she said, well, yeah, but on two conditions. Um, and I, of course, thought, right, okay, what's coming? And she said, look, I'm, yeah, I'll go with you to South America, but um, I want to go to Africa first and um, I want to have my own bike. So the issue of um, space and all of that sort of stuff, um, just, you know, it just didn't really occur. Um, she had her bike and, and her luggage. And, and, you know, this was actually one of the things that, that helped um, the two of us because we weren't traveling on the same bike. We had the space and we didn't have intercom um, or anything like that. We just had hand signals. Sometimes there were fists waved in the air, but most of the time not. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, that, that just meant that um, the challenge, I think, of, of traveling in close proximity with a partner wasn't so much of an issue for us. Although perhaps the counterbalance to that is that when you're sitting that closely together, you can communicate that much better unless you've got intercom. I mean, now we do use intercom, although Birgit still rides her own bike. And it, that has opened up a complete new world for us. But I think the thing that changed the most for me um, was that when we started riding together, Birgit had only been riding a bike for 600 miles. And we started riding together in Africa. And the difference between my, by that time, four years' worth of experience and her 600 miles was just huge. Um, and, you know, that was a disadvantage of traveling um, with two bikes to begin with anyway. Because, I mean, we elected for me to go in front so that she could watch what I was doing. And I was riding really slowly and really carefully and thinking, well, you know, she could learn from what I'm doing. And if I make a mistake, well, she'll learn not to do that, won't she? But um, I actually spent too much time looking over my shoulder and wondering whether she was all right and where she was. Um, and as soon as we decided that she would go in front, then the whole dynamic changed. And um, with her making the decisions, um, she just eased up in her riding style and I stopped looking over my shoulder all of the time and it began to work. Um, I think you missed a point there though, Sam, because she said there was two conditions that she would go and one of them was that she had to have her own bike. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> that, 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 to me, that to me screams something, that um, she didn't want to sit on the back of the bike. It wasn't for her. No, well, by this time, she'd learned how many times I fall off and end up in hospital. <laughs> <laughs> because that's, that's, a, that's a good reason. That's one of the other things I wanted to ask you guys about is what about when you get into some rough stuff and the bike goes down? It goes down. Susan's first crash on a bike was actually interesting. First time we fell down was in, um, I think it was Guatemala. We were following along some dirty little road to some something worth seeing. And the, it turned down into a little tiny track and then a tinier track. And then it got muddy and sloppy. 
and we tipped over to like three, four miles an hour. And of course, I just stepped off and watched the bike go down and Susan went down with it, not knowing <laughs> to do anything. I mean, her basic rule has always been don't do anything, just stick with the bike. And so she went down and ended up rolling in the mud. Only one catch. The mud was at the bottom of a farmer's field, and there were pigs up at the top. <laughs> so you can imagine what it was like. <laughs> she was not pleased, especially when well, I'm standing there spotlessly clean, just dirty boots. I hope you didn't laugh, Grant. <laughs> of course he laughed. <laughs> <laughs> and you're still together. There you go. Yeah, this was very early on, too. We'd only been together like a year at that point. <laughs> And I have to say that there are times where I get off and walk. Oh, yes. Yes, yes I've, I've had Shirley get off and walk and I've been to river crossings and uh, I can gauge the depth I can get the bike through when she walks through first so mm-hmm. that I can work out the path to go, which is really good. If the water gets into the top of her boots, well, we can get through, but, you know. <laughs> you may <laughs> laugh. That actually right. happened, but only oh, no. once did I fall for that. In the pool, I think it was. <laughs> the phrase um, human dipstick. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I learned that one the hard way going through El Nino in Chile. And I was the human dipstick. I was going ahead and checking things out. The human dipstick went right up to his chest. <laughs> this is too deep. This is not going to work. <laughs> How about you, Renee? Do you ride too up much? You know, I've... I've got a sort of a unique situation because I've hit all the points that we've been talking about so far. I, I started dating a girl uh, similar to Sam's story. We, we started dating a week before I decided to go around the world. And, and then I only left a couple of months later. So she decided to sell her house and quit her job and come with. The only unique thing was that she couldn't finish her work in time. So I traveled for nine months on my own to South America. And then she flew with her bike down to South America and we started traveling together. So I, I was coming from a solo traveler for nine months, and then her as a beginner rider, same same thing, uh, Sam's situation, uh, coming down and now losing my independent traveler status to now be the boyfriend and the tour guide and the translator and um, and mechanic and uh, and sort of the experienced traveler hat wearer. And and to be honest, it wasn't a, it wasn't a shift that I particularly enjoyed, and and we talked about it quite a bit. And now that's a tricky thing to bring up with someone because this relationship was only going to work if if we could travel together on bikes. That was going to be my trip. She was joining the trip, and we had actually decided that after South America, she was going to go home, and I was going to continue on to other continents. And she crashed in Bolivia. She sort of the opposite, because again, opposite to Sam a little bit. Um, normally I would ride and, and pace set, and on this little weekend, we were out with some friends on quads, and then she was in front of me, and she took a corner too fast, and she had a leg injury, but, and that, so that ended her trip. It also ended the relationship because she went home, and I, I continued traveling. There wasn't there, there wasn't enough there to salvage the relationship based on just our our riding style. Um, so I continued traveling uh, on my own, and and for me that was that was the way that um, traveling. That was the way that my travels were were really meant to happen for me in that sense. So for me, solo traveling is the way. I understand really what you were saying, um, there, Renee, because um, one of the hardest things for me was um, to stop being um, some sort of selfish road hermit. 
Um, yeah. You know, all of a sudden you can't just wake up and think, what do I want to do? Um, and you couldn't be lazy um, th because there were two of you. Um, you couldn't, I found that I couldn't be quite so instinctive and I certainly couldn't and um, didn't feel I could take so many risks because all of a sudden you've got the responsibility of the two of you. And certainly. that, of course, works both ways. You've got responsibility for each other. But there were an awful lot of um, bonuses to traveling with somebody else. And Brian and Shirley mentioned that earlier on. I, for me, it was the number of new doors that opened because it was boy and girl rather than boy mm -hmm. on his own. Um, that was that was really quite an interesting experience. People, particularly women, were inviting us into houses and so on, into situations that I just wasn't invited into before. You know, I but, find uh, that unique because I was about to say the opposite. I was about to say that... Um, the approachability as a solo rider, I thought, was actually higher than when we were as a couple. Certainly more than two would, would, would make mm -hmm. that drop quite a bit. But I thought as a solo rider, um, or maybe I just remember them more, that um, there, there just seemed to be more uh, easier to approach other folks uh, and other folks yep. to approach me. But People see you as a self-contained unit, don't they, when, yeah. when there are two or more of you. And the approaches that I had as a solo traveler were very different type of approaches to the approaches when there were two of us. And I mentioned women. Um, well, unfortunately, women didn't approach me very much when I was riding alone. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, when we were traveling together, all of a sudden, because Birgit was a girl, people were w inviting us into family situations where I didn't really, as a solo traveler, get that. But maybe that was just my own mental attitude that was affecting that rather than anything else. You certainly hear the two camps, don't you? You hear some people say they're better off by themselves, and some people say just what you were saying there as two people um, you, you're a couple and you just appear more safe you don't appear to be mm. quite the threat and, and I wonder if that's just what it is just what you pegged right there different experiences you know as a solo traveler you experience a certain kind of invitation then maybe as a couple you get different I, I think also um, that you're you are a self-contained unit as a couple and I look back on the two years that we were traveling in Africa and South America and I think if we always had each other to talk to, so I didn't don't think we always made the effort to reach out to other people that we might have made if, if either of us were were on our own. So I think you can become a little bit of a bubble. Um, as a you couple. can, and but we t um, we find that sometimes we will just speak on our own. But then, you know, if there's someone sitting near us in a restaurant or a bar or um, when you stop for fuel. Uh, we're just chatty Australians. We tend to talk to anyone, and if you're friendly, they're friendly back as a rule. And one thing we've always noticed is getting through border crossings seems to mm -hmm. be easier for a couple on a bike rather than a bunch of guys travelling together or or guys travelling on their own. Border guards seem to think you're less less risky when you're a well, married couple. We, sure. we had that experience in um, going through Russia and the stands. Uh, we had some friends who had done it as a group. There's four or five guys and every border crossing, they got searched, everything pulled out, laptops looked at for pornography and, and all their photos and all the rest of it, which is an offence over there. But as a couple, uh, we had no problem. Yeah, just No problem at all. Cursory search. Look, yeah. Uh, they understand we're travelling together. All right, you had to go into separate queues, but that's okay. Uh, so that was that was one of the advantages. Another one is that I find uh, very handy is when you come into strange cities. And um, I know Grant and Susan travel with two GPS, but we travel with the one, and our um, 
uh, intercom system's a really old system, but we could talk to each other. And having Shirley sit there and say, yeah, 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 I'm watching, I'm watching, I can watch the traffic, she watches, uh, next turn is in so many metres or whatever, um, uh, you know, it's just not handy to have another set of eyes there. And another um, pro that we found when we travelled with our friend Dave up to Nordcap, the wind was so strong it was blowing the bike all over the road. And Dave, who's an ex-racer, said it was one of the hairiest uh, moments he's had on motorcycles being blown around the road. And he said, I wish I had Shirley on the back of my bike for the extra <laughs> stability. He um, actually said extra weight. weight. <laughs> <laughs> she took exception too, but, you know, suck it up, sweetheart. Luckily, um, I got through that and Dave and I are still very good friends. But um, <laughs> there was a moment there. So if we look at travelling two up, What's the top things to consider if you're thinking of travelling two up? Oh. Knowing that you – sorry, Susan, go. You need to have negotiated, discussed significantly and negotiated the the purpose of your travels and what you want to see and how fast you want to travel. Um, all of those things can, can really be very disruptive if, if he, for example, is very goal-oriented and – wants to get from point A to point B in a certain amount of time and she wants to stop and smell the flowers and have some experiences and talk to people and take photos this is going to be this is going to be an issue we've we've heard of lots of stories of of people who couples who have come to grief because they didn't get those things straight and I know that Susan said he and she specifically there but I know of a couple who's the exact opposite way around she's the go-getter and is always in the lead and going fast and he's dawdling along, taking his time, not any rush. So it, it's it's very variable. But I think, as Susan says, it's important that everybody understand what it is you're trying to do and what's the point and what are you planning on doing today and how far are you going to go today. And basically talk about it. What are we going to do? What do we really care about? Not it's We see people saying, I want to ride around the world as a couple. And that's great. But there's very, very different trips there's lots of people could do extremely different kinds of trips, and you've got to be on the same path. It's it's so important, isn't it? And I mean, I think the other thing that adds in with that is the fact that both people are prepared to both talk and listen, and both talk, really talk, and really listen. Um, lip service just doesn't work, does it, to, to those things? No. Um, <laughs> it can lead to intense moments. Yeah, yeah. I've got friends, well, I, I know people who've traveled and um, they just haven't communicated well. And it's been a real problem for them. Um, several different couples who've been like that. Yeah. And you just think, oh, gosh, I just wish you'd sat down and actually talked about this and listened to what it, the other person said. It's a relationship. Did they talk to each other before they left home? Well, yeah, they did. Good but, point. you know, this is part of the thing, isn't it? Because people just not used to spending loads and loads and loads of time together, even when yeah. they're, in, you know, married mm -hmm. or, you know, 10 years boyfriend and girlfriend. Oh, uh, Sam, so on, on our first journey, you know, the number of people who came up to me and said, oh, your relationship won't last 12 months on a road, <laughs> touching day, day in, day out, that's it. You know, your marriage is over. And, you know, it did nothing but strengthen our relationship. And I think that what that's what it comes down to. If you have a strong relationship and a relationship is is mostly communication, um, it will work. Uh, but yep. you've got to be able to communicate and, as you say, communicate honestly about everything. Yep. 
That's really the key for any group, isn't it? it? You know, like any group you get together, and I think a lot of people miss this. You, you certainly see it when people put together uh, a little trip they're going to do with a group of friends They about negotiating the purpose of the trip. That's paramount, and most people skip that as a first step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see uh, that a lot with just, right. just groups of guys that are heading off. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure Rene can relate to this too. You know, I, I know guys who run tour companies, and you get some strong A personalities that uh, take over and uh, want to do things, and and uh, it can destroy the um, uh, the whole group uh, dynamic. Uh, everyone's got to be able to work in together, and I think that's really important, particularly when you're on the road and out of your comfort zone, so to speak, that uh, you communicate anyway. Uh, with his, with his, whoever you're traveling with. If, if you're a, a female and you're traveling on the back of a bike, I think the other thing that's important is that you, you have those discussions about what is each person's role. So you have to feel like you're part of a team. You know, sometimes you talk to women and they're like, well, he makes all the decisions and, uh, and I feel like baggage. Uh, and, mm. and that, that is really mm, death yeah. to, to a relationship. So with Grant and I, I mean, yeah, we have two GPSs. Mine, his is the, I'm in the middle of traffic and we know what's the next turn sort of thing. And mine is the, you know, where are we going to stop for, for lunch or, <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> or break, for, break for gas or whatever, but it's more, you know, the planning side. And, and honestly, I mean, he rides the bike and he fixes it and pretty much everything else, all the logistics is me. So it's, it's a team, it's a team effort. Yeah, that's very yeah. much the same with us. We have our, yeah. our jobs and um, and we do always discuss the plan for the next day, the next week, where we want to get to, what things we can do, what things we're not going to have time to do. But I've got to say, um, like Susan, we've been together for more than 30 years and uh, there are still moments where things can get a little frosty, mm-hmm. but, you, but you work through it pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you have time out from each other sometimes on the road, and sometimes you need that, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, you can't get, her, can't get her along all the time perfectly. No. Yep. I can't unturn the uh, intercom off. <laughs> I have control. <laughs> Brian can't turn me off anymore on our, the system we have, and that drives him crazy. Well, and then there's always a the kidney punch. Yeah, kidney punch works every time, Susan. <laughs> so we have um, negotiate the purpose of the trip, which I think is very important, and, and give and take, talk and listen. Is there anything else we should be considering like as a, as a top tip for somebody who's considering a long trip traveling two up? One thing is negotiating. I know we've talked about panniers and, and having car batteries in one and tire pliers in the other, but you really do need to have an idea of what each person can take and it can't all just be I need 25,000 pieces of clothing so you can have a pair of jocks and a spare t-shirt you need to you need to negotiate everything the other way that the round is uh I I say this said this is this is slightly a joke but not much um that over the years we had this debate about luxury versus necessity Uh, And I learned that if it was a tool or a spare part, it was a necessity. And if it was anything I wanted, it was a luxury. (laughs) (laughs) So you do need to at least allow for the fact that you're going to want some things that are just frivolous for you, you know, whether that's you you, the the female or the male, you know, sort of part of the the relationship. I don't don't know how Shirley does this, Susan, but sometimes somehow she finds space for stuff that I didn't even know she'd packed until we're three or four months into a journey. He does it somehow. Yeah, it's just a fine art. 
mm-hmm. hiding. <laughs> On the other hand, if it's been hidden for three months, you don't probably don't really need it, do you? <laughs> That's a good oh point. no, he's he's actually talking about things like. Um, my Fabergé egg that I bought in uh, St. Petersburg that lived in the bottom of my pannier until we got home. And he actually <laughs> thought it had been posted home. And I said, no, it was too precious just in case some mongrel post office in the world lost our parcel. So <laughs> it and uh, my motherland Russia ornament, it lived in my pannier for four months. Just things like that. Too precious to put in a post pack. I couldn't hide those things because I don't have a pannier. Grant packs everything. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we I'm really need to talk about this. You've started an argument here. Yeah, well, we're oh, going to have to have a conversation about this for sure. <laughs> yeah, we actually have two clothing bags each, just a small, I mean, very small day pack and a little roll pack. And that's kind of, you can fill that more or less, but not quite full each. And that's all you've got. That's your clothes and all your gear and stuff. So Grant, when you guys are packing, do you go through each other's gear and say, no, this isn't a necessity, this isn't a necessity? Nope, not anymore. Did at the beginning. But not anymore. Did I tell you the story about him breaking the ends off my toothbrush? <laughs> no. I swear oh. to God. Good man, Grant. Yeah. I, I, I always drill holes in the handles of mine. Ah, that, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> what do you do, Sam? I drill holes in the handles of my toothbrush to cut down the weight. Yes. Well, Grant, you, you could have been even more nasty and given her the handle without the bristles on it. That would have been. <laughs> no, I was watching her brush her teeth. She had like three inches of handle sticking out past her hand. She's only got small hands. She doesn't need it all. It's just a blunt toothpick. You know, I've just gone into a state, a state of shock. I can't believe I'm listening to this. <laughs> If any of you people, if any of these things happen on our next trip, you lot are in serious bother. (laughs) (laughs) We're giving Brian all kinds of ideas. I fear so. You could save more weight than that just by skipping breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) But you got to do that as well. (laughs) Yeah, you got to think about that. um, My top tip for um, traveling as a couple is um, always concentrate on the positives. Yeah. In other words, you know things are going to go wrong. You know things aren't going to work out properly. Um, and when that's happening, it's very easy to forget all of the good things that are happening and all of the good things that do happen because you're traveling together. Um, and I think as soon as something starts to go pear-shaped, um, mentally whiz your mind into the positives. Um, it can suddenly make what feels like it's a bad time into something that, hey, it's just another something to be solved. Yeah, yeah well, good, no, good advice. That's great advice, Sam. That's true. Yeah. And we've done that. One of Shirley's jobs is booking rooms, and she booked a room 700 kilometres uh, where we should, where we didn't want to go when we're travelling through Mexico. And yeah, we just sucked it up, and I went and laid on the beach uh, by the Caribbean for an extra day or so, and then we rode like cut cats to catch up to our friends, didn't we, Shirley? We did. I guess um, I should admit here and now that one of the drawbacks for Brian travelling with me is that I don't actually read maps. I'm not Susan. (laughs) 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 And I I did make a a little error in where I booked the hotel room, and it it was 700-odd case from where we were meant to be, but he took it really well (laughs) and enjoyed his time by the caravan. So are you talking 700 one way or both ways? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Fourteen hundred, correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, doesn't um, matter. Doesn't matter. And we're still together. <laughs> That's a little out of the way. It was a little out of the way, and we were on a bit of a time schedule, but um, it's okay. So, we Jim, got through Jim, it. 
they're Australians, you know. When I was living in Australia, an Australian um, riding a bike for 800 kilometres to go to a party was nothing. Yeah, no, that's yeah. right. Different, different <laughs> sense of distance down there. Very, very much so. But whenever I've done that sort of thing, I've just pretended it was deliberate. <laughs> <laughs> Part yeah, of the adventure, right? Uh, Lisa, let me get this right, Susan. You lied. <laughs> no, I just, you know, shaded the, <laughs> shaded the truth. Adjusted the truth, yeah. Well, he's always saying he wants adventure, right? And if you just yeah, yeah, follow, yeah. if you just follow a particular plan and you don't deviate from it, then you're not going to have the same kind of adventures as if you exactly book a <laughs> hotel 700 miles away. Anything else to add with doing it with a partner? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I don't think it matters whether you're on two bikes or one bike. Really, I think uh, it's all about relationships and uh, how good you are with it. I think I think that's really nice to hear as we talk through this to realize that you sort of think about logistics and things like that but relationship is very clear that's the big thing through all of this yeah, mm-hmm. that's all that really matters if you've got the if you look after the relationship everything else will look after itself exactly yes what's interesting, that's from, right. what's interesting for me looking back at the time that i traveled so solo and then the 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 year or so that amy was with um it, the, the clear advantage to traveling with Amy for that for that length of time was what um, was an obvious one for me in hindsight, and that is just having someone there to share experiences, who can remind you about you know that that place in the hills that served that soup. Remember that had the, f- the guy with the funny haircut. And as a solo traveler, I I forget a lot of those details. I tried to keep quite a detailed journal, and I tried to take a lot of photographs. But there's a lot of stuff that just minutia of daily life that gets missed and it it was so pleasant to have someone else who was there um reminding me about these really cool memories that unless i speak with amy again i'm going to lose them because i just haven't i don't i don't remember them and then that for me is probably by a considerable margin the the greatest advantage of traveling um, with someone special um on on these big life-changing events I, I've got to agree with that. I, I, you yeah. know, I, I have fond memories of sitting in a ramshackle little bar on the side of um, the Okavango River overlooking the Okavango Delta, watching the, the hippos uh, wallow around in the water, sharing a drink with my life partner. Uh, it's a very, very fond memory. And uh, that's, that's all part of life, and uh, you should share that experience. Yeah, absolutely. We'll go along with that. Yeah, me too. There's lots of stories that, you, you know, we can almost just say a couple of words and, oh, yeah, the other person knows <laughs> yeah. exactly what you're talking about, yeah, where it exactly. was, and everything comes back. That's right, Grant. Yeah, yeah. Well, our, our next topic is uh, technical in nature, and uh, it's laptop survival. And we're talking about uh, choice of laptops, um, you know, whether netbook, iPod. Um, also, how we keep it from getting destroyed, which I think is really important, obviously, for those of us who ride motorcycles. It's very easy to get things wrecked, even if you don't drop it, because the vibration alone will kill just about everything. But I think we should start this off really by saying, what on earth do you need a laptop for? Hmm. I, I traveled for a couple of years, the first first two years, two, the first two and a half years without a laptop. Now, I'm dating myself a bit, so this is, we. I started traveling in 2003 to 2006, and that was all without laptop, just a small little camera. 
And I did all the internet things um, at an internet cafe and got a coffee and sat down at the internet cafe and, and did all the stuff. And for the second half of the trip, my brother bought me a little la- Apple laptop that I used mostly for photo storage because the pictures were getting bigger and more frequent. So, it, and, and I know a lot of travelers who um, who are not connected to to the social media world, and, and I, I have a really soft spot in my heart for them. Um, because I was not like that, and I think they're actually traveling maybe a bit more of a way that I um, honor, you know, traveling for themselves rather than continually, continuously having the need to update the rest of the world on where they are on their adventures. And uh, so for me, the, um, the, the Internet Cafe thing worked super, super well. And now we're getting to the place where we were in, in Mongolia last year. There's cell service everywhere. You can get data. You can get, um, I mean, for better or for worse, Wi-Fi is um, darn near everywhere. So mm. Better or worse. I like the way you said that because it's so true, isn't it? There, there's sometimes you just want to be away from things. Yep. You don't want to be connected, especially if you're, you're camping somewhere, at least from my, in my mindset. Maybe I'm old-fashioned as well, but... Sometimes I just don't want to have that connection. Yeah, it's nice when it gets forced upon us. When when the the power goes out or your battery dies, and you're kind of forced to go without your 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 device of of whatever kind it is. Um, I think those are quite special moments. If you live in Australia, there's plenty of places where we still don't have um, Wi-Fi Self-sourced. ability or Yesterday. mobile phone. Yeah. But for the the use of the laptop, because I think everyone just assumes that they have to take some sort of laptop with them. Really, what are we using it for? We're using it for, I think, photos, email. I mean, does that about cover it for everybody? I use it for our journal, and um, I couldn't do a handwritten one because my handwriting's so bad, even I can't read it most of the time. So <laughs> then you have um, to transcribe it later anyway. That's too much like yeah, work. yeah. <laughs> so that's what we use ours for: photo storage emails and uh, keeping the journal up to date. I know a lot of people use, like to bring music with their, um, have, have music playing at, at the campsite at night and such. So I would put music as, although phones are getting so massive that you could probably keep it on your phone too. Yeah. I, di- I didn't travel with a phone, but I did have a cellular phone with me, a really, really old one, and I just use it for the calculator function. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just having an, um, a, a laugh here as well because I remember my first ever backpacking trip and um, I set off with music because I wanted to be cool on the beaches and things like that and I had a cassette player and this cassette player was about, I don't know, a foot long and um, six inches deep and, and I had, um, I don't know, 50 cassettes with me half my rucksack was filled with music and damn me, I couldn't even lift this rucksack off the ground properly Did you get more invites from the women on that trip? <laughs> I certainly got plenty of raised eyebrows from truck drivers who had to jump out of their cabs to give me a hand to lift the rucksack <laughs> Oh, that's sad. <laughs> so photos, email, journal, music, anything well, else anybody people, would use one for? Yeah, we actually work. We both carry a laptop because we've got, we have to work when we're traveling, no matter where we are, when we are. We're always, every, every night we have to get on and do some work. Uh, so for us, the laptop is required. Yeah, I think that, that's that's sort of a special situation. I think most people aren't going to work. But but even for work, Grant, are, like, what are, are you doing just mainly emails and stuff? Email is probably the biggest part, but we also have to um, moderate on the website, um, make sure there's not getting spammed, deal with, well, I just, 20 minutes ago, I had a DNS attack on the server that took it down for a few minutes, and I had to deal with that while we're talking. 
this sort of stuff just happens and you have to deal with it when you're running a big website. Because the reason I asked is because I was going to say, unless you're running specific software that you need a laptop for, most of our stuff, even accessing your server online, everything can probably be done by some sort of simpler device rather than our home laptop. In, I mean, I realize you probably want all your photos and everything else that you have with all your documents, et cetera, in your computer, in your case, but that's special. Um, for most people, they can do almost everything from a very simple laptop or what I'm leading to is possibly even a tablet nowadays. Yeah, most tablets now today for could do it for most people. It depends on how much you like typing on a tablet. For those mm, who are doing yeah. uh, serious blogs, typing for any length of time on a tablet is horrible. It's really hard on your fingers, if nothing else. Yeah, we can't do that. We, we, we uh, both like to use a, uh, a laptop because we just find a tablet too difficult to work off. Yeah, it depends. I think it depends very much on how much you're inputting. Tablets are wonderful for consuming, for reading, for browsing Facebook, just browsing the web generally. They're great. But if you actually want to create something, like actually type a story, a bunch of words, a, long, a number of long emails, tablets are terrible for that. That's oh. where a laptop comes in. Don't forget uh, editing photos and video. You can't really oh, yeah. do that on a tablet. Uh, you can. Yeah. But no, many, many will argue you can, but I, I'm with you, Susan. I honestly don't. Without a mouse, I don't think you can do it properly or easily. Yeah. Yeah. I think you have to have it. But, but so let's look at the laptop then. As far as a, a durable laptop goes, I think one of the first considerations is the, the hard drive itself because a spinning hard drive is, is very susceptible to damage when it's running, but also at altitude. If you're planning on going places where there's high altitude, I think most uh, spinning hard drives are, are only uh, guaranteed to something like 3,000 feet, somewhere around there. And that's because the disc that spins around depends on air to keep the, the needles that float just above it off of it. So when you get into that thin air space, you can um, end up having a hard drive not just crash but be damaged permanently. So, um, I, I, I was going to say, I suspect that it's more like 3,000 meters because there's a lot of places. I mean, I think of Denver, for instance, that's at 6,000 feet. All the hard drives in Denver don't crash. They work right. fine. Yeah, I think you're right. Yes, it's 3,000 meters. Thanks. Which would be um, 10,000 feet. Right. And, and would be sort of unusual. But, I mean, it's something to consider, right, if you're, if you're heading into the mountains. Yeah, well, I haven't had any reports of anybody having trouble in Bolivia, for instance, which is well over 10,000 feet for much of it. Uh, I think it's more the physical issues. Uh, there's no doubt that a, um, a hard drive itself is more susceptible to damage than a solid-state device. And you can get terabyte solid-state drives now. Um, I need one desperately myself. But the more important thing is just the general conditions of how you're traveling with a laptop. As long as the drive's not running, it's okay. Branch, you want to talk about the... Uh cushioning that you used on ours because we've been carrying a laptop since 1987 hopefully not yeah. the same one. <laughs> oh my god no you can't imagine how slow that first one <laughs> that was. one didn't have a hard drive two <laughs> floppy drives two 720k three and a half inch floppy drives that was it program on one dos 211 if anybody remembers what dos is mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and word perfect on the other one and it was uh it worked just fine we used it for email um on a regular basis and it was fine. But um, what I always thought about was I did a lot of sailing before we started off on the motorcycle and when I started thinking about where am I gonna put the laptop, the laptop did not go in the top box. Um, one thing you learn sailing is that the most comfortable place on the entire boat is dead center. You do not wanna be at the ends. Anytime you're at the ends, that's where the boat is moving up and down a lot and a motorcycle is much the same. 
the most movement is at the end. So the top box is going to get the most bouncing around. And I don't know about you, but I've seen top boxes fly right over the head of the rider. You hit a big bump, (laughs) which is not a very good thing for anything that's in them. So my thinking was to put the laptop in the saddlebag, which means it's got to go on edge. So I put uh, about three quarters of an inch of shock absorbing foam that's designed for shipping scientific instruments. So really good shock absorbing stuff. Put that on the bottom, put a quarter of an inch on the inside and packed some clothes around it on the outside to keep it in place. And that worked just fine. We've traveled, all, all of our travel has been with a laptop packed like that. And our second trip was with the lap, was with a hard drive laptop and it worked fine. It never failed, never had an issue. And I think that's the best way to carry it. Top boxes is not a good place. We just carry ours packed in, um, in amongst our clothing. We don't go to all the trouble of um, packing stuff around the, the laptop. It just goes in amongst our clothes. We use a, we use a wow. zip. Now, nowadays, we just use a zip um, neoprene, neoprene, bag. neoprene bag to keep yep. the dust out of it. Shove it in, uh, in between a, some nice soft clothing. That's fine. And every laptop we've taken on our um, oh, hundreds of thousands of kilometres around the world never had a problem. Never yeah. had a problem. What kind of laptop yeah. is it? Oh, this one. What's the, this one, Sherry? What's this laptop? Uh, this last trip, we took a Microsoft Surface Pro. Don't start me; they're rubbish. But no. um, normally, we just take a little Hewlett Packard no. Mini. Yeah. That's not a laptop, isn't what? it? Isn't it a Surface Pro? Pro? Sure, isn't it's, it? a laptop. it's a tablet. It's oh. a tablet yeah, that has like, all. Didn't like it at all, so we went back to our. Um, um, uh, Back computer. to the little mini laptops, yeah. smaller laptops. Is it is it a computer or, or is it a, a, um, the Surface tablet with a keyboard? It has um, it has all the Microsoft programs and a keyboard. So I was able to use it. I was working on the last trip and I was able to use it to edit my magazine and uh, and do the web page. And we used it to put load photos up onto the cloud. But really, it's, it's just rubbish. Yeah. Why is it no good? Uh, it, it the programs would default all the time and with email sometimes you could send emails sometimes you had to go through the um the web mail and uh, just things just the sort of things that at the end of a long day just did your head in you know silly minor stuff whereas when we took the the smaller laptops we never had that problem yeah, it sounds like there were some serious issues with the setup on that one that was a surface pro 3 i assume yeah it was yep yeah yep. yeah the pro 4 is out now and it looks a lot better yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't bother. Yeah, I, wouldn't bother. I, I, I think we'll just take the laptop again. But on our first trip, when we went to buy the laptop for um, this is back in '03, um, we went to this shop to buy the laptop, and she came out. You want this bag? You want that bag? No, 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 no. And when we took it out of uh, the the cardboard box and uh, shoved it in a panny, of the sales lady was aghast that we were going to travel around the world with this laptop. But we wrapped it, it up in a clean up. towel. I don't know <laughs> what she was worried about. Yeah. No well, I, the one I, reason I like the uh, foam system that we use is that the laptop just goes in there in its literally a neoprene case, same thing. Stuff it in, and then I can just stuff the clothing around it. I don't have to be fussy about making sure the the laptop is properly wrapped and it's not going to touch metal anywhere. Stuff it in, push it up against the far wall, stuff the clothing bags in, done. I'm I'm a lazy packer. The less work I have to do and the less thinking I have to do, the the happier I am. If I can just drop that in there, drop that in there, boom, 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 it's done, I'm happy. 
Yeah, I guess I've got a little bit of a combination of of what both of you do is I've got a a neoprene um, zip bag, again, to keep the dust out. Um, If I know that I'm going to be traveling in places where it's really humid, then I'll get hold of some silica gel, um, you know, tablets and just stick those in there as well. But I cut up um, one of the old-fashioned bog standards basic foam sleeping mats um, and just made a a U-shape for... And, and the neoprene slides down inside that. And then um, the, other, the only other thing I think probably that I'm doing that's a bit different is that I never pack it on the outside of, you know, the, uh, of the pannier because um, if I'm going to hit the deck or something hits me, then that's the more vulnerable side. But also it's the side that gets um, the most heat depending on where the sun's coming from. So I always pack it on the motorcycle side of the pannier. Oh, yes, absolutely, without a doubt. That's, I put mine as far in and as far forward as I can do it. Mm. So no one's taking tablets alone? No. Not us. I'm sure there's lots of people that do, and they're very happy with it. Because aside from the extended typing thing you were talking about, Grant, and and actually I'm one of those people who I enjoy typing on the iPad, but I'm not a traditional typist. I'm a hunt-and-peck typist. Uh Fairly fairly fast at it, but I do have to look at the keyboard. But um, I enjoy typing on the the tablet. I I think it's, for me, it works really well. But I think that the downside is, for any of this, is memory capacity. So if you're you're looking at, especially if you, you mentioned, I was going to say, you mentioned a terabyte... uh, uh, mm-hmm. um, SSD, well, that's extremely expensive for most people's budgets to buy something yep. like that. And storage yep. capacity is a problem, right? If you're looking to store photos, you can end up eating a lot of space up. Yeah, for sure. Like we've got uh, terabyte uh, hybrid hard drives in each of our laptops, and we carry a two terabyte hard drive that's, I think it's got 16 gigabytes left on it. And that's what we take as our minimum. And if I was doing a lot of photos, I'd be taking along another couple of terabytes. So it, it's everybody's different. It depends on what you need. Well, I think photos and videos are a big thing for everybody. Everyone seems to mention photos and videos all the time. I see that posted all over the place. Does anyone have any methods that are particular for photos and videos that would be better than trying to load it onto a, a, a tiny hard drive of a laptop? Uh, last trip, we used the cloud. Interesting. Wow. When you and, have access. <clears throat> uh, yeah, of course. You need yeah. internet access. But we've found, unless you're in Australia... You have internet access everywhere. We went through the stands in Siberia on our last trip and there was only one town in Tajikistan that had no internet access. Everywhere else did. And if it's not a a fast thing, you just have to be patient or upload your videos when you've got a stronger signal um, and just use it for photos and text when the signal's not so strong. We, We managed to do it. I think that's that is an important part that changes um what people are bringing, whether it's laptop or tablet, based on storage capacity, because there's a lot of folks running GoPros or some sort of video capturing device, and those things suck um, memory. And especially if you're going to download those every night or every couple of nights or try to do movies um, while you're on the road, you're going to need some horsepower behind that to to make those little movies, to put them on YouTube or put them wherever. So I think that the introduction of those mobile attachable cameras has changed uh, a lot of people's minds on what 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 they need, what kind of um, mm. system they need to travel with them. Yeah, I can't imagine editing video on a tablet. It's just no, not no, going to happen. Gonna, no, I, I would assume with that sort of thing. I, I was thinking of cards. I mean, if you were if you were doing a lot of video, at least in my mind, I think I'd want to have a lot of cards, you know, and and start uh, maybe even just sending those cards back. 
Yeah, we, we travelled yeah. with a lot of extra cards too, just in case you couldn't download stuff that you mm-hmm. you, you could um, just pop a new card in the next day. But like Renee says, you you know, video eats up so much memory. It's incredible. And you try shooting at 4K, I mean, you're, you're going to be looking at a lot of money in storage. So it's a big problem. It's interesting, though, Shirley, you said the cloud, because I do remember you saying on that last trip that um, you found internet everywhere. And that, that's interesting that you've, you really tried it there. And it works to some degree then, even if you had to be a little bit patient. Were you doing yep. video and, and photos? Mainly uh, yeah, mainly photos. But we did shoot some video on the last trip. And um, yeah, we we'd upload that onto the onto the cloud because the Surface Pro had um, bugger all space on it for storing stuff. So that was the easiest way of doing it and it just took a little bit of patience. And at night at the end of the day, uh, we tend not to go out to bars and party. We tend to have a meal and then go back to our room and sort out all the bits and pieces of, of life on the road and that part of that was doing the photos and videos. Yeah. Yeah, that's why we carry a spare separate hard drive. And you can get three and a half inch hard drive, two terabytes for about $130 these days. That's a lot of video space. Yeah, it is. You can afford to carry it a couple is. of them. And that's probably what we do if we do another trip. We did just that, take we the did little that laptop. Before. We've used, we've used um, uh, independent hard drives. Yeah, in South and America. Crazy we did if you that. just rely on your, on your computer to store everything. What happens oh, if yes. it crashes? What happens if it gets stolen? Mm-hmm. You, know, you lose yeah. all your memories. And the number of people we came across, we bumped into a guy somewhere in South America that uh, had his uh, six-week trip. All all his um, photos were on his camera. He went to the toilet, left his camera on a shelf, um, mm-hmm. went back five minutes later, camera's gone. He had no photos of his journey. You know? yeah. You've got you to think about these things. Yeah, the number of stories I could tell you about people who've lost huge amounts of their photos because they didn't back it up enough. Um, I mean, my mantra is backup, backup, backup. When you got at least three copies in three different parts of the world, you're starting to feel maybe slightly comfortable. Every time we send, yeah, every time we send something home when we're traveling in that parcel will be memory sticks with, with car, with um, our photos and things. So we have a set of everything at home. We have a set with us. And on the last trip we had a set on the cloud as well. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. The cloud is a is a very good place to put your photos because there's a lot of redundancy built into most of those. I, th- I would assume all of those systems. I'm just going to say that for the for the generality of it. But um, they have to back up those drivers. Now, I'm not saying there's a chance that you can't lose it, but it's certainly I think safer in most cases in the cloud than it would be in your spinning drive in your laptop um, on your motorcycle when you're traveling. Yeah, without a doubt. So um, considerations for somebody looking right now. So they're going to go on a trip and they're going to take some sort of device. I'm going to suggest that the consideration first would be, and, and not that I'm pushing tablets by any stretch of the imagination. I just think that they're simpler, they're smaller, they're lighter, and they tend to be, um, well, I think just because it's an SSD, it's, it's solid-state drive, that it's, um, it's a little bit more durable. So I'm going to say my thoughts on it would be to consider what your use is, what you want to actually do with this thing. Are you going to plan on storing your, your photos on, which we're already seeing there's maybe a, a poor choice? Um, anyone else? I agree with that. And I think um, the other consideration for me is how much is the thing going to cost versus how much that money would put fuel in, in my, my gas mm. tank? Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. a really good point. A lot of times people I, take a lot more laptop communication systems than they really need when you hit the road. It sounds like you want all that kind of stuff to start with, but two weeks out, you realize, you know, I haven't taken the laptop out yet. 
I find also a lot of people are using it um, primarily for a, for a Skyping or a FaceTime. You know, mm-hmm. when we get when we get groups overseas and we see them after dinner, th- there's a lot of them trying to keep in touch with friends, especially if the trip is a smaller one, a vacation style of trip rather than a you know a multi month or longer mm-hmm. style of trip. It's um, it's that instant FaceTime, and FaceTime is is quite nice to do on a tablet type of of um, thing, just because the other person's face is that much bigger. And then yeah, we're talking about storage. The, the tablets, I mean, for the most part, depending on which ones you're getting, but they're, they're, they're all small. They're, they, they're no good for storage, really. They'd only be good to transfer it. I don't even know why you would do that, though. You wouldn't even bother transferring it on the tablet. So really, as far as that goes, a tablet is useless for storing photos and video. Yeah, there are drives out there that you can buy where you actually take an SD card, plug it into this gadget that's about the size of a cigarette pack, plug it in, and it automatically transfers it to the gadget. Mm. Just backs it up. So you got at least two copies very easily. Yeah, I tried one of those. Unfortunately, mine failed. Oh, <laughs> so I only tried it the once and uh, I bought this thing. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And, and I was doing that, putting all my photos on there, thinking I was it was going great. But it's a spinning drive and it failed. And unfortunately, yeah, I lost yeah. it. But it seems to me that like, uh, I'm just running it through the, my mind as we talk. It seems like the cloud is, is like really one of your best bets. Yeah. Yeah, I would just worry that if you've got big, big video, it, it's going to take quite a quite a while to get up there. But you know, I surely said go go home and let it uh, go, let it upload all night. Why yeah, not? that's what we've done. Just yeah. turned it on and gone about our business and just keep checking that it's still uh, it's still uploading. And you can set um, your device to make sure it doesn't turn itself to sleep. Mm-hmm. So while. with video, though, uh, Grant was saying you can, you, know, you can get big hard drives and load on the hard drive. So what would you do? You post the hard drive back home? Yeah, if necessary. Yeah. Yeah. When you come down to it, I mean, this, this is where I, I, mean, I remember a number of years ago when digital cameras were getting popular and a, uh, I think it was a six, one gigabyte SD card was considered to be, that's a pretty good size. And the guy asked me in one of my photo classes, um, I'm thinking of going to South America for six months. Do you think I should take two? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, they're so cheap now. I saw one recently, 64 gigabytes for like $40. I mean, at that kind of volume and that kind of price, carry lots, mail one home, buy another one, make copies, make more backups. Um, always think back to if I get home and all my pictures are gone, how much would I pay to get them back? Mm, exactly. Okay. You're going to pay a lot. Most people would pay a lot of money to get them back. So why not pay it up front or a par- small part of it up front and have a number of backups in a number of different places? Be safe. Don't lose them. It's the, the, the crying and the complaining <coughs> and the, the bad comments that I've had from people that have had bad experiences. I remember, I seem to remember Sam lost pictures in Africa, for instance. Yeah, I did. Um, um, that was having them developed. This is back in the good old days of film. Oh, don't remind uh, me. And I had three countries worth of films trashed by a developer. Yep. Not, um, I'm not going to tell the story because it's long and incredibly boring. But anyway, <laughs> I ended up losing all those pictures, which was a right pain. And I'd done everything right. But just thinking about film and listening to the conversation, you know, back then I'd always get my pictures printed along the way. And I'd send back the photos in one envelope and I'd send back the negatives in another so that at least yeah. I had mm-hmm. one chance of something arriving. Mm-hmm. Actually, Sam, yep. you said you did everything right, but if I remember correctly, when I read that story, you had said that you put all your films in at one developer and you shouldn't have. Yeah. Oh, well, right. Then I did almost everything right. Yeah. We were doing every, <laughs> every second roll would go, 
Um, like if we had 100 rolls of film, I'd send every second roll, but only 25 rolls to a place. And if they came back good, then I might send them another 25. And then I'd send them another 25. Otherwise, and, and you want a horror story, but a short one. We went into the Fuji distributor in Cairo with our film from North Africa Went in there, gave him a batch, and went to pick him up. And when we walked into the place, there was these guys sitting, and this is Cairo, dust, sand everywhere, at a table. There's three or four of them. They slide. They were cutting the negatives by hand, or sorry, the slides by hand, and then putting a finger on and sliding across to the guy who was actually going to put him oh. into the mounts. <laughs> the, the scratches are unbelievable uh, just a horror show and that's the fuji distributor that's the, yeah. the that's the guys you know it should be good it's terrible thank yeah, goodness for digital oh, God. oh there are a lot of advantages aren't there but you know one of the things that we haven't mentioned in this conversation is actually you can most people can do an awful lot of what they need with a good quality smartphone yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I have that written down here, Sam, and I'm glad you brought it up because I, I'm going to go back to what we started out with, and, and this is what why I keep talking about the tablets thing because we've already decided now that the photos and the video are really too big for for most of the laptops. They're too big for tablets. You're going to have to find another way to deal with them and send them off. So really, what well, we're talking about emails, we're talking about uh, music, even a journal, and yeah, I'm wondering, does anyone use? Has anyone done that with their smartphone? Does anyone use it like that? No, nope. definitely people out there doing it, doing everything with a smartphone. Yeah, I mean, because you can get some, as we all know, fair sized screens with them. Now you're down to a tiny little thing. I, I think the the thing is that that I want to put the point I want to get across with this is I think you really have to consider what you're really doing, not what the romantic vision is, but what you're really going to use it for. And if really it comes down to you're going to do FaceTime and and you're going to write uh, just a few emails, not for business, but I mean just personal emails. Wow, a smartphone, like Sam said, I mean, that, that will go a long way. Yeah, quite adequate. I know people who do do everything on their smartphone. Um, I know a guy, TourTech distributor, in fact, who has a large Galaxy something or other, I forget what it is, but it's, you know, it's a big smartphone. But that's it. That's all he uses. Does everything. And yeah, I tried this. Everything. I tried the Note 2 for a while, which is a, a big one, and um, I really liked it as far as being able to do everything on it. It's a nice big screen. The problem I found with that one was, uh, and, and this runs into something different, just for everyday use, it was just too big to put in my pocket. But for an extended trip, it could be ideal. I don't know about the price, though, because now when we're talking about smartphones, you're talking five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars $800 for these phones, whereas you could probably jump right back into a cheap laptop a lot, uh, a lot less expensive <clears throat> than that. Yeah, but a cheap laptop is about 10 times the size and weight. Mm -hmm. A good laptop is $1,800, $2,000 that's going to be suitably small and compact and have a decent-sized hard drive. So which do you need versus which would you like? I would think that people – I think it would be surprising to find people heading out on trips who, who don't take both of those items. I think the smartphone is going to be ubiquitous for a lot of travelers now, wouldn't you think? Oh, I yeah. would, and, and what I would question is why. This would be a supplemental – well, I think would be the storage would be the um, photo or storage management, and and the the phone itself would do would do FaceTime. I don't know. I, I've I missed the boat on the smartphone thing, so I'm a bit of a luddite when it comes to to that stuff. You still have a feature phone? Uh, it's white. <laughs> <laughs> Does it have oh, a perfect a lid you flip open to make a phone call? No, no. Does it have an antenna you pull up? <laughs> <laughs> or worse, it, it doesn't it retract. A, it has a strap that goes behind my wrist, 
so when I hold it to my ear, I can carry it. <laughs> like the old bricks. No, it's an it's an it's an old Apple. It's a it's a couple of year old Apple thing, but um, I, I I use it for phoning people. That's a weird uh, thing to do with a phone nowadays. Gosh. Really, <laughs> I mean, especially I the younger generation—they don't even talk on the phone. They don't want to. Yeah, and I, I think most people are, are are more advanced with those phones than I am. So it's um, but but they'll have the phone. I don't think the phone is one of those things that people are going to give up or they're going to consider giving up before they travel. It they they're with them all day, every day in their non-traveling life. I, I'm, I would be surprised if they even consider not traveling with the phone. And then what's going to be the supplement thing? Is it going to be a tablet or a... Um, yeah. Do you know anybody who's say... traveling without one? Does anyone know anyone who's traveling without? I mean, I know a couple of Aussies, actually, Billy and Trish, who, who are traveling with nothing, none, no technology. But does anyone else know? It's no. very, very rare. Yeah. Very, very rare nowadays. But one thing I, I, I consider is... Why buy the latest and greatest? You know, if you're sitting in a in a hostel or something, you make yourself a target for having yeah. it stolen too. So you've got to really think about that. You know, dress it down, uh, make it scruffy. So you you don't want to buy a two thousand dollar laptop and then um, scratch it and uh, make it look dirty. And as long as it does the job, really, that's all you want. Yeah. You can say that about motorcycles and gear and helmets and GoPros. Yep. Yeah, too. Yeah, you know, yeah, I think exactly. I think we convince yeah. ourselves that there's there's a certain amount of things that you must need for this trip, and the money that's left over after you buy all that stuff is the mm-hmm. money left for your trip. Um, and, and sometimes you don't see the the, the, the alternate choice there until you've finished your trip. Yeah, well, that's right, Renee. One thing we haven't addressed with the electronic devices that you need to travel with is something that you can read ebooks if you're like oh, me yeah. and like to have mm. a book on the go all the time. Um, mm. To have the iPod or I- iPad or a, a tablet for reading books, um, I you find that really phone. important. The screen is a bit small on the phone once mm. you start getting to a certain age. If you tape it to the back of Brian's helmet, you can actually watch movies. <laughs> oh, no, I hadn't thought of that. There, that there, really an idea. there must be a, a holder for Thanks, that already. <laughs> Don't get any ideas, Susan. <laughs> well, I think it's a very good point uh, that you're making, though, about the reader. But um, you can also get the ones that are that are not a tablet. You know, that's something completely separate, like the the Kindle that yeah, you can yeah. the, you can read in bright daylight, which is, I think, a, a real asset if you do like to read. And and if you're really running on a budget, the Amazon Kindle with the keyboard and it's it's been around a while. I have one of them. Uh, it's just a gray screen, but you can do email on that. However, cumbersome, very cumbersome. You can do email and get free internet connection uh, in, in many parts of the world. Yeah. One thing we haven't considered with all this uh, electronic witchery, uh, gadgetry stuff we're taking is um, power uh, supplies and um, uh, the plugins that you need to carry with it. It's almost as big if by, by the time you take a Kindle, say a laptop, uh, maybe an iPad, the chargers, uh, yeah. a, a good mm-hmm. digital camera, uh, you've almost got a penny full of um, cords Wires. and bits and pieces. Yeah, you can reduce it a lot. We've gotten ours down for the two of us. We only carry one thing each that plugs into the wall. That's it, and that does yep. our laptops. It does our cell phone. Uh, we carry a Kindle as well. And that's enough because the power supply we've got has a USB connector on it. And the laptop, even when it's asleep, has a socket that's got USB power. Mm. So you plug one, the, the power bar into the wall. You can plug another gadget into it. And then I've got a, um, one of these USB. You plug it in and it's got several more sockets. Plug yeah. that in. 
and we carry little connecting cords for the phone that are like six inches long, and that's it. I've got a, I carry my power supply, my power cord, um, an adapter, and the connectors, and my mouse, and anything. Oh, and a half a dozen USB sticks in a little brick. I'm just looking at it here. It's under three inches by two inches by about eight inches. That's everything. That's all our power. What about your camera battery chargers? Because a lot of cameras won't charge by connecting them to a USB through a USB to a power source. You need to take the battery out and put it into a, a charging Charge. charger. Cradle. Yeah, the charger I've got is about half the size of a cigarette pack. Yeah, yeah. And it That's all it. adds up. And when there's it children on up. one bike, it all adds up. Well, I think what um, somebody starting out from scratch has to really look at, and I'm glad you brought that up, Brian, is the, is the power supply. Where do you start with the power supply? And can you make that one power supply, that one plug into the wall, do multiple things? Well, then the next, the next thing is they want to not charge it from the bike, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then you got an yeah. octopus. You have an octopus of cable sticking out of some guy's tank bag and then <laughs> yes. wired below him, under him, to a solar panel that he's duct taped. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I had my solar panel duct taped, or sorry, Velcroed to my top box in 1987. <laughs> I don't get the solar panel nowadays, really, because you're nowadays, running a no. yeah, you're running a bike that puts out plenty of power, and you can charge everything. I mean, I sort of have to chuckle when I see these these solar panels advertised as something for a motorcycle. I'm thinking, why would I take a solar panel on a motorcycle? It doesn't make any sense to me at all. Backpacking, uh, you, you, you have, have, to, have to ride an old yes. bike like mine, Jim. Oh, yeah. sorry. Your <laughs> battery, Sam, is about uh, 50% bigger than the battery on ours when we took off. You've got the, the uh, later model with the big battery. I had the little teeny battery, and it was teeny. It was like the size of yep. two pocketbooks. Um, yep. And, yes, that's, that's why I wanted to solo. Okay, so we're yeah. not talking about the yeah. antique bikes. We're talking about, like, modern motorcycles, 20, 30 yeah. years old. 87. <laughs> oh, sorry, mine was an 86. And, yeah, it was yeah. pathetic battery size. But so, uh, today, so one of the cons- one of the considerations would be so try and find something that uses common uh, ports for charging. The 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 uh, mini USB and the micro USB are both common. It seems like I'm seeing a lot of devices now that are going to the micro USB. I have no idea why. Which is Virtually that's the, everything. Yeah, that's the flatter one. The, yeah. the, the smaller one and um, the old the old connector is gone. It's finished. It's history. It's, it's bizarre, and, isn't it? I mean, you get so many things that are mini USB. We get all these devices that'll work off the same cord, and now they got to go micro USB, even though they have the space for it. It gets worse. The micro USB is now dead. The new connector is called a C connector, and it's even smaller. And the nice part about it is it's reversible. It doesn't matter which way you put it in. But that's next. It's coming. Wow. Well, I'm not looking forward to that. Uh, something, I, I, something else to lose in the tank bag. Yep. <laughs> yep. Something else to spend money on instead of putting fuel in the tank. Of course. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Goodbye, Sam. Somebody smarter than us. The, the last question I had was, is anyone, and, and Renee, you sort of led to this too when you're asking, is anyone traveling without anything? Does anyone use internet cafes anymore or are they even there? Or are they just Wi-Fi? Oh, we, we've used uh, the Golden Arches uh, internet cafes. Uh, <laughs> I hate their food, but their internet connections well, are usually free, pretty they, good. Yeah, but I mean wild. internet cafe with a computer where you would actually go in, you don't have your computer, you walk in and use somebody else's computer. Are they still around? Um, Depends on where you are, I think. Yeah. Most hotels now have Wi-Fi right automatically. I mean, there was a period there where internet cafes were everywhere. I remember 97, 98 in South America. I went into a small town and said, where's the internet cafe or is there one? And they said, yeah, well, there's Jose over there and there's 
Bob down there, and he's somebody. A guy down here has another one, but it's faster, and he's got better food. Good lord, couldn't have imagined it. But today, I think they're starting to disappear. Yeah, I think just by everybody's hesitation there. I mean, it's something that no one considers anymore with all the devices that we have available to us. Well, and also people. So when we when we're in Mongolia, for example, on the road, we we don't bother you looking for Wi-Fi so much as we just get a chip or a SIM card for the phone, and we use the phone as a hotspot, and we do data through the phone. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of taken it away a bit, isn't it? You know, when you I can a lot in in India, we would be in uh, we were ringing home at Christmas time. You had to stand in a, a little uh, booth, and the um, the uh, digital dial above the booth would uh, be how much money you were spending, uh, and you'd have to pay that. Well, we ended up getting a crowd of about a hundred people watching our digital um, thing uh, spin around so fast. I'd never seen so much money spent in a phone call. <laughs> Does anyone remember I mean, the phone? Too. Does anyone remember the phones? You'd stick your finger in the dial and turn it around. Vaguely, uh, those I'm old enough. Days. Well, the cup? kids don't. The kids don't realize this. But when 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 they say that you know, ring me up or or dial my number, that's. You know, that's what we're referring to, but they've never dialed the phone in their lives, but they'll still no, use that's, it. That, yeah, that's, that's true. That's right. Hey, dial. Jim, Jim, I go back to party lines. I'm a country boy, and we had to yeah. dial up the operator. And uh, so who would remember that? Party lines. <laughs> well, you, know, you got me there. We, we had a party line when I was a kid, but you didn't have to phone the operator. I think it was a, it was a two different rings, I think is what it had. <laughs> so, yeah. so you knew your ring, yeah. and if you wanted to hear what was going on at the neighbor's house, you picked up anyway. <laughs> <laughs> those were the good old days. <laughs> and with those with those rotary phones, you hated all your friends who had a lot of nines and eights and sevens in their phone numbers. <laughs> <laughs> you got most of the way, and you screwed up, and you figured, you know, you've been dialing for ten minutes. Get it. <laughs> Uh, well, what we have been a lot of fun. <laughs> what we have for our last topic here was um, when riders with low or no riding experience want to travel, and we've had people on the show who have left on an adventure with very little riding experience. Some of them have no riding experience when they left, and they've sort of learned on the road. Um, and I'd say that's that's a that's almost a common thing. I mean, I, I've heard it a lot for sure, and I've talked to a, a number of people that have done just that. What should we consider when we're we're talking about this sort of thing? Do you what do you guys how do you guys feel? How how does everyone feel about the amount of experience you have? I mean, you could actually take that to travel experience as well. But let, let's just talk about riding experience because there's some inherent dangers with not knowing how to ride and going to foreign places. I would want to hear. What I think Stan anybody has to who say. sets off with no experience at all is completely barking mad. Yes. <laughs> what is, Sam, so how much, how much yes. here. <laughs> I was just going to say, how much riding experience did you have when you left? Three months. Um, I passed my test six weeks before I got to the Sahara. So fairly experienced, <laughs> you would consider? Yeah, yeah, no, I had loads of experience. I, I knew how to fall off. I was very elegant. Well, you know what? That That's a really good example here. So do you think that you should have um, had more experience before you left? A lot of the time, ignorance is bliss. Um, I think um, if your skills deficit, then you learn to compensate. And what I mean by that is um, you teach yourself not to do anything in a hurry. Um, you teach yourself to watch what other people are doing. You teach yourself not to put yourself under pressure by trying to do too much too soon. And it becomes a mindset after a while. And yeah, you accept that you're going to make mistakes and you get your fingers crossed that you're not going to make a huge mistake. But every time you do blunder, then you sit down and you think about it. Now, what went wrong? 
how could I stop that happening? And you slowly learn. Um, but the key is just not allow yourself to be hurried or, or put under pressure. And, you know, th- there's a really simple thing here as well. If you're a complete novice motorcyclist and you're setting off on do- doing a big trip, um, eat well, sleep well, and keep yourself properly hydrated because those are the things that keep you sharp and they help balance out your inexperience. Like I, I would like to have uh, people travelling who have a pretty good uh, experience on a motorcycle, but it comes down to common sense. If you're not experienced, uh, don't be gung-ho. Uh, there's, a, there's a young uh, person who wants to be the youngest person riding around the world, and at 16 years of age, um, going and riding through South America or Russia or Mongolia or whatever, I think is crazy. It's crazy. You, you need to have good common sense. And uh, what Sam uh, indicated then was uh, he compensated for his lack of riding experience with common sense. Simple as that. And Sam had had three years of backpacking around Europe, which teaches you a lot of common sense. But I know sure. at 16, I didn't have any at yeah. 16. Yeah, Grant, you're absolutely right. I'd done a lot of trips in various different ways by that time. So I'd, I'd learned a lot of the things that um, – Many people are trying to learn at the same time as as um, staying upright on the bike. You know, Birgit did um, the BMW off-road course when we finished the trip, um, and she just her first comment to me was, "I wish I'd done that before we'd hit the road." Okay, uh, we did write answer, a lot of it, and most of it was just literally done on common sense and a wing and a prayer. Um, but she said the skills that she learnt in just a few days on the BMW off-road course would have meant a huge difference to her. It would have cut down a lot of fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, a lot of stress would be a lot lower. I mean, just being able to do a U-turn in a, in a street, you see the average beginner, they, they're paddling their way around. They're, doing, they're basically doing everything wrong. Um, and, and I think if you ride too much without some instruction and some basic training, you end up creating bad habits that are really, really hard to unlearn. Yeah, that seems to be a common thing, isn't it? Where people talk about things they've, they've learned just through um, teaching themselves and then they go and try and take a course and they have to overcome that and they have to learn the new skill. Yeah, yeah. You see that all the time in training situations. We see that uh, that's one of the reasons we're doing a lot of training at some of our meetings this uh, going forward is because there's a lot of people who are coming from a street environment and they, they may even be a decent rider on road. But as soon as you hit the dirt, hey, that's a whole different ballgame. And, and if you don't understand it, it's terrifying. There, there's a sentence that terrifies me at trade shows when we're talking to people who are coming over and, and ask, you know, how much experience do they need to 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 do some of these trips, which, because we, we do some off-road or gravel road riding. And mm-hmm. the one sentence that sells, sends my bell ringing is that I rode dirt bikes as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It runs really loud, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And one yeah. sentence gets their, gets their name a little asterisk beside it. Mm-hmm. Grant, <laughs> you said you're adding training. Are you doing that with all the hub meets now? No, not all of them, just some of them. It depends on where it is and whether we have the facilities. And we only have so much capacity ourselves to start training up at a number of events. So we're doing training. We just did some training at the Virginia meeting. We're hoping to do some at California. We're definitely doing some. The Hub UK uh, is going to have a massive training presence. We've got 
all kinds of stuff. I'm getting into my plug here. Uh, well, I, I'm curious about that because, I mean, I think that's really neat. So it, would this be, this isn't going to be a full-on course for them. Is this going to be sort of an intro? Uh, it's basically designed, I, I can't say that it's a course because we're doing, at Hub UK, for instance, in the morning, there will be a free classroom session that anybody can attend. They need to pre-register to make sure they get, they get a seat. Um, and it's all about the techniques, the thoughts, the how it all works, why a motorcycle does what it does. And, and when you lean it this way, it does that and why it does that. So you understand what the instructor is saying when he tells you to do this in the afternoon. Um, then you can also take, if you've got a fair amount of experience, you can also take classes in the morning. And we've got some big name instructors doing it. Um, which I'll save for my plug. But the, the idea is to take you from any level, doesn't matter how low you are, as long as you can ride and have a license, to a significant big step. And once you've got that first step on off-road riding, basic techniques, slow speed skills, uh, it, it, it all comes down to slow speed skills. If you can control the bike at slow speeds and really understand how you're doing it and why you're doing it and how it all works – then the rest of it comes easy. Speed is easy. It's, it's slow speed skills and you being able to understand and control the bike properly is, is where it all uh, comes together. For everyone here today, how would I know if I need to take a course, if I'm just about to take a, a long journey? <laughs> I'll answer that first. Okay. If you have to ask, you need to take a course. That's a very good point. <laughs> yeah, I, either you're very experienced and you've taken courses and you've You've been riding for a long time, and you've done lots of off-road, and you're comfortable. And if you, but you know you what it's like, though, that, Grant. You, you need to learn. No, but you know what it's like, though. If somebody doesn't know what they need to know, they sort of go into it. I mean, you see this with a lot of things. People will get into something, and they'll think they've got it all sorted out, but it's only because they have no idea how big it really is. So, in other words, yeah. you know, you, they'll they'll get they have all that confidence of the beginner of the okay, yeah, I can go fast on the motorcycle, but then they find out later on that that is actually very easy, and that's a, that's a small portion of it. So, I mean. You know, I, I mean, I guess would we recommend that everybody take a, a course before they go on a trip? And I'm, maybe that is it. I would absolutely recommend everybody should take a, a good street course uh, as a reminder or refresher. And then they should take an off-road course, at least one, preferably a couple of them. Just because of the difference it makes, you really don't appreciate how much of a difference it makes until you do it. And Birgit is the classic example didn't didn't realize how much she didn't know and could have got oh, absolutely so much right i think sorry no i was gonna say she could have got so much more out of the trip probably had she not been so worried about her skills and what she was doing wrong or and not knowing it at the time but have just, and, and have acquired those skills before she left and then be able to sort of look around and soak other things in the first three months were very very difficult for her but um and by the time we'd got down to the bottom of Africa a year later, she was better at off-roading than I was and all sorts of things. You know, she learned really fast. But um, I think that if anybody has the time and the money to take a course, why not? We can all of us always learn. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's one of the things we're working hard on with our courses is that they're very inexpensive compared to the traditional um, unnamed mention, unnamed uh, courses that you can take out there. Ours are we're trying to do it much, much more reasonably priced so that anybody has no excuse. You know, if it's a tank or two of fuel for a course, hey, <laughs> just do it. Yeah. It's a no-brainer. I think it's also worth mentioning that uh, until you've been to some, some of these places, you have no idea how different the, tra the riding is or the, the, the road 
sort of rules or not lack of rules. Um, we really noticed that when we were in India last year, and and of course, you know, famously in places like Cairo and Mexico City, um, if you're not, I think, an experienced rider, you you have this assumption perhaps that people follow a particular way of tr- of riding, and uh, and you'll you'll be in a lot of a lot of risk. Grant could maybe comment more, but yeah, did, did you guys ride a motorcycle in India? No, <laughs> that was a really really sad story. <laughs> But but we saw lots of motorcycles in India, and, and what we discovered is similar to Cairo. You know, you might have th- you know several lanes uh, of you know r- p- several lanes painted on the road. Doesn't mean there's only two or three vehicles in there. It's like seven or eight of them. The, the lanes are just guidelines. They're not actual rules. Um, so you just have so many more vehicles in the space which you're expecting to have. If especially if you come from North America and you expect that you have a lane as a motorcycle. You know, you have your own lane and you keep in your own lane, but that's not the case in a lot of the world. You're expected to share a lane with at least three or four other vehicles. So um, if you're wrestling with scary. new skills to begin with and then you have to go handle that as well, that's yeah, a exactly. completely different world. And your bike is overloaded. And, and look for uh, road hazards and the rest of it, John. I agree. Yeah. I remember driving into Cairo in the situation Susan was talking about with cars everywhere and dodging huge potholes three and four feet across and six or eight inches deep. I'm trying to dodge these with a heavy bike, fully loaded, and cars are squeezing up to me. And I remember two taxi drivers, one on either side of us, came up and somebody leaned out of the window and wanted to shake my hand. Welcome to Cairo. (laughs) Okay, this is madness. Did you do it? (laughs) Uh, I managed to shake one guy's hand, but that was it. Couldn't do the two at once. The other guy thinks you're rude. Yes, he does. (laughs) When anybody asks me what it's like um, riding in places like that, I always ask them, have you ever played Space Invaders? Um, uh, <laughs> riding roads like that. Space Invaders Live. That'll give you an idea, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we've, we've had that. I've had um, the crash bar tangled up in a tuk-tuk uh, in India. Um, yeah, no problem. But you, know, you, you, you just got to handle it. And the more experience you've got, the easier it is to handle those uh, out-of-world experiences for what we're used to, I suppose. Yeah, uh, and especially low-speed skills, being able to handle the bike at one mile an hour, one kilometer an hour, walking almost walking speeds, you know, just barely moving along, having yeah. really good control and balance and being able to make tight turns to get around stopped cars and idiots doing stupid things, it's so critical. The bike's easy to ride at 30 miles an hour. That's that's a piece of cake. Anybody can do that. But two miles an hour is a whole different game. I think another right, skill that, just um, only comes with the, that, that comes with time is to look at a parking lot quickly and within three seconds know where you can park the bike on the proper slope. That's yes. not going to get you jammed into um, a place where you've got to try and walk the bike out backwards or something. <laughs> and that's, yeah. a, that's a skill. Some people can, oh, can do that quite quickly and other people, it's, it's there's just no way that yeah, <laughs> and thinking it. whether you should be nose in or tail in. Yeah, like mm-hmm. let the bike go backwards down the slope, yeah. and then you can just drive out. But driving in downhill, parking the bike on the side stand downhill, it's going to roll off the side stand, and you got to drag it back up. That's <laughs> really hard. Sam Grant, um, you um, you explained to me why I managed to survive my first year riding down through Africa um, in the three months that I was learning to ride a bike. Um, I spent hours and hours and hours riding figures of eights and slaloms at slow speed. 
it just seemed like a common sense thing to do. Oh, really? Yeah, see, there you go. Common sense wins because that low-speed stuff is everything. Mm. Common sense is a bit of an oxymoron, we know, though, because it's not all that common, right? No. But, uh, yeah, work on that low-speed control and figure eights and all that and, and braking at low speeds, coming to a dead stop at really low speeds suddenly, all that kind of stuff's critical. So I think we all pretty much agree that um, if you can do it, a course is a really wise thing to do. Yep, absolutely. Oh, for sure. Agreed. Yeah, I've been saying two basic things for a long, long time. Um, take a smaller bike and take a course. Those are the two traveler's mantras that I use all the time that I tell everybody. Yep. It makes sense. Um, well, I guess we're going to move on to our plugs and picks. So let's um, let's start off with our picks. And um, well, Grant and Susan, you guys are doing one between the two of you, right? Yeah. Okay, Susan, what do you have? Okay, our uh, our pick. We were uh, in Virginia at our um, meeting last weekend, and we had the pleasure of watching a presentation by a young man by the name of Dylan Samara Wickrama. Uh, which I think he's shortened to Dylan Wickrama uh, to make it easier for people to pronounce. Uh, Dylan, we had originally met uh, about oh, three or four years ago at least at uh, a couple of other meetings, Can, our Can West meeting in the cusp. He just showed up one day and said, oh, I'm uh, he's at, the, at the meeting and he said, I'm, I'm uh, on a round the world trip. I come from Sri Lanka. Um, if you have a, a spare slot in the schedule, would you like me to do a presentation? And we said, sure. Uh, so he went went over very well, and then later on he went to California and did another presentation, and then he headed off south. And um, most recently, he actually got as far as Panama and discovered that there's a Darien Gap. Um, <laughs> and instead of doing the, the typical thing of, of uh, you know, hiking the thing onto the Stalrat, he actually built a raft and powered it with his motorcycle and sailed around the Darien Gap between Panama and Colombia. So uh, the story of, of that trip is uh, what he was presenting on, and he's also got a book uh, out now that's available in English, and he's just a fantastic uh, – the book's called When the Road Ends, and uh, it's now available on Amazon UK at least in English. And as I said, he's, he's just an amazing speaker, and we had a great time uh, listening to him. He got a standing ovation from the folks in Virginia, um, and so we – that's our, our pick is uh, Dylan's book, which I think uh, great, great read and great story and, when and the a really inspiring ends. one. Yeah. When the Road Ends. When the Road Ends. Okay. Well, I mean, of course, we're going to have that link in the show notes, as, as same as we will with all these links. That sounds like an interesting read. Does he have a, a video out as well about this? He um, has a couple of YouTube videos that he, fil- he literally filmed himself while he was on the raft, um, okay. <laughs> getting lost and and. You know, running out of things and being rescued by dolphins and uh, just an amazing, amazing story. And uh, so, yeah, he's got video on YouTube. And as I said, the book is also out. And he set this up so the tire is in the water and he ran the bike to power the raft? Oh, much more sophisticated than that. <laughs> he disconnected the, the rear differential unit and drove a prop shaft off the drive shaft of the bike. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's amazing. He, he was just... Cool. Wow, really cool. He's uh, his training is as a mechanic, um, so that's he had some basic mechanical skills, but he had zero sailing skills. He had no idea, for instance, that when he headed off, his compass. He's smart enough to have a compass, and he also had a GPS. But the compass is affected by the metal of the bike, especially when it's running, 
and gives you a weird setting. Boats right. have to be properly, they call it swinging the boat, and to get the compass to be correct in all aspects, in all directions. And he had no clue. So the compass was pointing east and, yeah, but it's sunset and that's the sun's, that's the direction the compass <laughs> says, no, that's not right. That's not right. Sun does not set in the east. So he had some serious, <laughs> serious navigation issues. And it's pretty hilarious. He shows the track. It's just like, oh, my God. It took him six weeks to do what should have taken two that takes me back to the other question, then. I guess we should have thrown that in there about the riding lessons. Should we take sailing lessons when we go on? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, the, I mean, new, the new sailor's mantra is, when the road ends, build a raft. <laughs> right. That is an extreme for sure. I'm having a, um, a little wry smile here because, um, and perhaps me saying this is going to underline what Grant and Susan have just said, um, I had also chosen... Um, Dylan's book um, for my pick. <laughs> well, that's, a, because that's a good sign. I'm so impressed with it. I'm super impressed with Dylan and his wife Martina. Um, both of them are the sorts of people that you meet and instantly like. They are incredibly genuine. And when you hear the story, you just think, wow. Now, this is what the word adventure actually means. Um, but these guys have got no airs and graces. They're both completely down to earth and, and absolutely super. Um, and their website, um, when the road ends dot com, um, gives you just loads of information. Yeah, totally impressed. Um, in in a, a review that I've been working on recently, I put um, a superb story of challenge and determination with some very funny moments woven in. It's a book that leaves you smiling and dreaming even harder. Very nice. You said the the website was whentheroadends.com? Yep. Dylan will be at Hub UK and Ireland. So make sure you're there to see that presentation. It's spectacular. He's, it's possible he will also be at uh, BC and California, but we're still kind of working on, on the logistics for that. Well, that was a good one. Thank you, Susan and Grant. Well, uh, Sam, I'm going to leave you for your pick until the end so you can scramble for whatever you had for a backup and and go to um, Shirley and Brian. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, our pick um, this month is, I've already sent you the link for this, the, there's a campaign in Australia, in Victoria where we live, uh, for motorcycle safety. Um, we've had an incredibly large number of motorcyclists killed so far this year and Mick Doohan is doing um, a campaign with Spokes.com about what you wear when you're on a motorbike and um, the difference between coming off in a pair of jeans and coming off in proper leathers and wearing boots with ankle protection or trendy um, sneakers. It's informative and it's interesting because it's McDoan and he talks about some of the crashes he's had uh, on and off the, the track. And um, that's at spokes.com, which is a motorcycle safety campaign uh, group here in Victoria. Yep, and we already have that link. Nice. So, yeah. Renee, we were talking about picks, and you, you don't have a pick? That's correct. Okay. I feel bad. No, no, we'll opt you out. You get a, you okay. get a zero for that. I'm sorry. We're not <laughs> going to... And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Sam, what do you have for us? Well, I, I'm, I'm going to um, pick a, um, another book. Okay. Um, this book is called Ashes to Boonville. And it's by Jeff G. Thomas. Um, 
Jeff um, and a buddy rode across Russia, Asia, Europe, and North America um, on a couple of Triumph Tigers. And um, do you know, when I first read uh, this book, I felt instantly at home with it. And I felt at home with it because, A, um, Jeff's descriptions are absolutely magic. They're so good that you could be standing next door to him seeing some of the views that he's describing. Um, and I really like that in the book. I think um, a travel book needs to, to really try and put itself you there with um, the person. Um, but I also like all of the threads that are woven through this book. And they connect the journey in a way that quite a lot of travel books don't do. Um, some some of the threads in this book are quite dark and um, very honest and from the heart. And um, so the book's called Ashes to Boonville, and it's by Jeff G. Thomas, and it's available in paperback and Kindle and so on. It's um, yeah, it's it's a great read. All right, sounds like a good one. Jeff G. Thomas, Ashes to Boonville. And of course, we'll have that link in our show notes. You'll you have to send that to us, Sam. I will do that. Okay, so on to plugs. Renee, we're going to step you up to number one position, even though you got zero. Points? Even though you got zero on the last one, I think we're just we're giving you a leg up. Thank <laughs> you. Thanks. <laughs> um, my my plug is for uh, for people who are in the eastern side of our fair nation. I'll be doing um, a quick little speaking tour at some select BMW dealerships at the end of May, beginning of June. Um, Wednesday, May 25th at Endress BMW, Thursday, May 26th at Marinello in Toronto, and then Friday, May 27th out to Moncton, New Brunswick at Atlantic Motorplex, and then Thursday, June 2nd at BMW Toronto. And, and these, are, these, are, these are fun, lighthearted evenings of uh, trips, long trips that I've done. And we'll talk a little bit about the touring company as well. And, and one of the ways that we'd love to get or convince people to come down and share the evening with us is that we'll be giving away a thousand bucks to someone in the crowd for, um, to go towards one of the trips. So hopefully that'll encourage some riders to um, skip coffee that night and come join us and hang out. Yeah, we for think those so. who haven't heard Renee speak, he's, he's really well, well worth listening to. Well, there you go. Now, Thanks. now you've got a, yeah. a really good backup right there. <laughs> To get Grant in there, bolstering your your tour, that's fantastic. So, what what gets you out to the east of Canada? We we try to, as part of dealer support, get to dealers that who have been supportive for us um, throughout the year, and it's a nice way for us to get out of town, see faces, and and we kind of get wrapped up. We don't do much riding. I can say that I don't sit on a motorcycle between January and and June of the of of any year, and and most of my riding is from July till Christmas time. So in order to sort of keep connected with the motorcycle world, it's important for us after the trade show season is done to get back into the dealers. And it's, it's a fun place to hang out. It's, um, it's a way that we it, – it's sort of a strategy that we use to el- eliminate the chance of us getting buried by our own self-importance here behind the computer. <laughs> yeah, because I, I remember you saying you don't even have a motorcycle home, do you? No. Well, I've got that old 650, but it's more of a, it's just sort of a scenic object. It doesn't, um, it doesn't run that well. Do you ever get into the U.S. as well to do tours? We do. We've been in the U.S. for the last three years and um, it's time to go come back to visit the Canadian dealers. So uh, we'll be in nice. Canada for the next couple. Yeah. Have you been to Max BMW? I was at Max. Well, they have a fourth one now. I've been to three of the four. The, the Hartford location, the, the most recent location um, opened 
uh, a week after we were driving through there. So, yeah, three of the four we've been to. Very nice. So you can find you doing a presentation. I, I believe you said May, is it 25th, 26th, and 27th? 25th, 26th in the Toronto area, 27th in Moncton, New Brunswick, and then June Thursday, June 2nd at Toronto BMW. Wow, very nice. That would be a good event. Well, Brian, what do you have for a plug today? Oh, well, um, our plug is obviously our new book is out and going to be released at a, uh, an event in uh, a BMW dealership in Melbourne at South Bank BMW on the 21st of this month at 12.30. Um, they're putting on food and drinks and all that sort of stuff, which is really good. And um, our new book on travelling to Vladivostok, uh, The Long Road to Vladivostok. Long it's cool. way. It's actually oh. called The Long Way oh. to Vladivostok. There we go. <laughs> uh, the wrong way. <laughs> it's very early in the oh, morning. Yeah. So it's it's called the long way to Vladivostok. Now, are, are you sorry? Are you guys giving away a thousand dollars to go to this? Uh, no, <laughs> absolutely oh. not. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, just come along and buy a book. It's actually going to cost you. No, <laughs> no. The launch is a free event, and the book will be on sale for any of the Melbourne listeners to. Um, to Adventure Rider Radio, the book will be on sale at a reduced price and it'll be available through our website, which is um, aussiesoverland.com.au as of next week. And the the, the e-book, which for our international um, listeners, the e-book is available through or will be available in a couple of days through amazon.com and it's The Long Way to Vladivostok. Very nice. So is the hard copy not going to be on Amazon for, for North America? Look, it is. It is, Jim. But unfortunately, because of the costs, it's a print-on-demand and the photographs and maps are only in black and white. So but it's, the better e-book if, is, it's better the if they get it by e Yeah. Yep. And unfortunately, because of Australia being so far away from everywhere else, it costs way too much money to post copies of the book from here to people in the Northern Hemisphere. We, we understand that. Canada's the same problem. Well, Canada's not far away. It's Australia that's far away. I know, but to mail from Canada to anywhere is... <laughs> no, like, I mean, it's Australia that's way off in the middle of nowhere. We're right where we're <laughs> no, supposed to be. Right, Jim. Just settle down. <laughs> right in the middle of the map. You've got it wrong. You know? <laughs> You're all a long way away. We're quite happy down here. So when you guys look at a map in a, of the world in Australia, is Australia the centre? It's the only thing on there. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you talk to the Ecuadorians, they reckon the, the, the map of the world is all wrong. We should be up the other way. So we should be at the top of the world. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, well, we Africans, we get really upset at the way that um, our continent is made to look so small on the map of the world. <laughs> They're just jealous, Sam. These Northern Hemisphere folk. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we're true blue Aussies. I know yeah, you, you guys you're, are. You're, with us. <laughs> you're just away from us for a short break. Exactly. That's right. Well, congratulations on the new book. I think it's fantastic to hear that it's out. I'm looking Thank forward you. to it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, superb. Many congrats. Very good, Wonderful yeah. feeling, hey? Yeah. It is good. It was a great feeling when the uh, the boxes arrived and we opened it up and it was all the pages were in the right order. And <laughs> you, you never know until you see it. That's true. Yeah, Have you ever true. had it the other way? Have you ever opened the box and found something terribly wrong? No, no, we haven't, thank goodness. 
Well, we had a publishing company many years ago, and I'll tell you, we did have that experience before. And usually it was at the film house, though, where you had to pay to fix it. But at that time, you had to pay to make film for the press. And oh, yeah, it was, uh, yep. that was not fun. That was one of those nightmares that you know that it's going to be, you know, six, seven, eight thousand dollars to fix this thing. And it was just like everybody's panicking. So I can, I can imagine how that, uh, that stress of opening the box and hoping that everything's right. It's such a tense moment. I had a delivery of 2,000 books and um, over 60% of them had damaged covers and pa- and photographs oh. inside, upside oh. down. And oh. Just, oh, no. Oh, this is a professional company. What's going on? <clears throat> mm. Oh, Sam, that's awful. That's, yeah, well, it's just another adventure, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Listen, those are going to be those are going to be worth something someday, you know. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be like stamps, right? Yeah. yeah, they kept me very warm one winter. <laughs> Grant, what do you have for a plug? Uh, well, for us, it's it, we've got lots of meetings going on. Ontario is now just a month away, June nine to twelve, and we've got lots going on there. We got a great new venue, lots to see. So go to horizonsunlimited.com/events/ontario. And a big one for us is Hub UK, which is falling right on its heels. We're flying direct from Ontario to the UK, uh, June 16 to 19. It's the largest HU event worldwide, and we have an amazing new venue. I think everybody's going to love it. We've even got hotel rooms and things available. Well, I think they're all booked out now. Everybody's jumped in quick on those. Uh, we've already got over 50 presenters, including Dylan Samarwick-Rama. Uh, we've also got Jacques Lucasen, the crazy Dutchman, riding around the world on an R1 and riding across the Bering Sea in the winter on an R1, towing a sledge. Wow. So there's some amazing presentations coming up. And especially for us, that's really exciting, I already talked about, was the off-road rider training. We've got an off-road rider training course right on site. We'll be doing classroom and on-bike sessions. And we've got some real names to do the training. We've got Ramey Coach Stroud from the USA who many people who were at the 2010 UK event, I think it was 2010, 2010 or 11, um, he had a room of three or 400 people just spellbound for hours talking about his, about training and how to do these, all this stuff. And we've also got Lee Walters, uh, European, our British uh, enduro champion, and many people will know David Niter Knight will also be there training for us. So on Saturday, riders can put their fresh skills that they've just learned over the weekend on a ride course for the the inaugural Hub Adventure Travel Challenge. That's going to be lots of fun. So you have that course set right up at the event? It's right there, right on the the grounds. You you walk 20 feet from your tent, and there it is. And what do you do with three instructors? Are you doing like rotating classes? There'll be multiple classes. There'll be multiple sessions going on. The instructors will be doing different pieces. Uh, depending on what level of skill, we'll put you into the appropriate class and what we're trying to do. Those are the three name instructors. We will also have some others if we need them, and we think we will. We've just opened up registration, I think was yesterday, Susan. Yesterday, we've got about 25 people registered already for, for the training. Uh, so it's going to be lots going on, and we'll be able to accommodate anybody from I've never ridden on dirt in my life to experienced riders. That sounds really neat. So it's the biggest one. You said 50 presenters, 50. 50, and we're not even close to being finished yet. We always find that we get a num- quite a number of presenters in the last few weeks, so we're expecting lots more. And where is this one? This is at Baskerville Hall. Remember the book, The Hound of the Baskervilles? Mm-hmm. This is the place that that book was written about. 
So there should it's be in, ghosts there? Yes. Oh, we expect all kinds of goodies. <laughs> there, it's um, in Wales. So it's, and it's, I think it's an hour, two hours from London, something like that. Um, so good to new location, lots of amazing riding in the area, lots of great roads to ride. And uh, there'll be some off-road riding as well. So lots going on. It is be a fun. beautiful area, absolutely stunning riding everywhere around there, and the venue is is um, yeah, it's lovely, it's great. What a, what a yeah, I'm so pleased to see the Hub UK happening again. It's fantastic. Are you are you there, Sam? No, I'm going to be somewhere else. I'm afraid. Uh, right. Sam's Otherwise, was bad. I would have been there like a shot. June 16 yeah. to 19, you said, right, Grant? That's right. Well, to be honest, it's a little bit our fault because we didn't manage to get it all finalized for the venue until December. And so, of course, some people had already made plans for uh, the mm-hmm. summer, which happens. But we'll expect Sam back next year. Oh, yeah. Very cool. I often wish I was in the UK with all this bike stuff going on. Well, it's, it's really simple, you know. You, you just go to the airport and you get on a plane. <laughs> and again, you're going you're fast. There. You're going fast. I'm writing this down, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, what do you have for a plug? Well, talking about going to the airport, in six hours' time, I should be leaving home. Um, and heading for the airport, um, wow. heading over to the States. And I'm going to be in the States for seven weeks. And I'm going to be bouncing around in Arizona and um, California doing presentations, um, book signings and so on. I'll be at um, Overland Expo first near Flagstaff. And uh, really looking forward to being back there again. Um, it's, a, it's a really buzzy event with some some class acts there presenter-wise. And after that, I'm going over to the uh, BMW 49ers rally, which is being held um, at uh, Mariposa. Um, Funnily enough, at the the same venue that um, Horizons Unlimited do their California um, event at the showgrounds there. Um, And I hear really good things about it. GS Giants are going to be doing um, off-road training and um, off-road school and so on. Ted Simon's going to be the key presenter there. And, yeah, there's an amazing um, list of presenters. Um, So people need to have a look at the website for that. And um, so those two are in June, uh, in May. And then in June, I'm doing presentations at um, San Diego BMW, Santa Clarita BMW and Riverside BMW. And, um, yeah, you know, I'm really, really looking forward to being back in the States. And Arizona and California, fantastic. Seven weeks. Not only am I going to get a chance to do the presentations and to meet loads of people, but I'm going to get lots of riding in too, and I I can't wait. So you're going to be selling books while you're there. You're going to have all your books. Yeah, absolutely. And are you going to have any of those books that are the collector's items? <laughs> no, they kept me warm one winter. Um, um, no, we'll only have good books. <laughs> well, that's great. So that's uh, that's a nice tour. Sam, where is your tour? Like, you must have it on your on your website. Um, yeah, it's on my website, and um, also Elizabeth has um, for the show notes has got um, links and so on. Okay, perfect. Well, that's great. So um, anyone uh, in the U.S., you got to go and see Sam talk at uh, one of these events. So you know what I did? I, I went through all these picks and plugs and I forgot to give mine. So if you have patience, um, I, I just want to give my pick. My pick is, now I, I know <laughs> some of you are already used to these, but for me, this this Bluetooth communication system is brand new. 
Oh my gosh, what a world that's opened up. It's incredible to have a Vox operated system um, to be able to talk to somebody you're riding with. And uh, what I was trying is the Senna uh, 20S and, and I, we had a Senna 10S as well, these Bluetooth communication systems. I was stunned at, first of all, the the, um, the way they worked. They, they work so well, so smooth, talking back and forth. Um, but the other thing that really got me was I kept expecting them to go dead. I don't know if you guys have used these ones in particular before, but 13 hours talk time on the one and 12 hours talk time on the other. I was highly impressed. The only thing I would have liked to have seen with these is, is um, a greater distance. I think the 20S goes farther than the 10S does. So it would have been nice to, to be able to separate. I'm talking about riding on two different bikes. You know, you're riding with a friend. But um, what a world that opened up really for, for communications back and forth between the bikes. So that's my pick, the, the Senna 20S or the Senna 10S or maybe any Bluetooth communication system. I think it's great. And, and going back to us talking um, about uh, traveling um, with two up, uh, just just quickly while we're wrapping things up, does anyone not use communication systems in traveling two traveling two up? Nope, we've used one since '87. Okay. Yeah, we've always had one. You, Shirley, you, yours is an old one. You said, or are Yeah, it's said? an old one. It's still hardwired. Well, we had a, we had one that was produced by a guy here in Australia, which was an old CB system, which ran a CB radio underneath the seat. Oh, yeah. And then we've changed to an Autocom wired system, which has been on three different bikes. It's about oh, 12 years old now and hasn't missed a beat. And is it Vox system or do you press a button? No, this is Vox system. Yeah. It's a Vox system. And it'll plug in a, a, um, a um, UHF radio that you can tune and if someone's got another system like that, uh, you can hear them too um, uh, on um, line of sight. So it'll do 5K pretty easy, actually. But it's a really old system. It's not. It's not, um, it's uh, not Bluetooth, Bluetooth at all. Well, the, the Vo- I've used Vox before. I'm, I have a ham radio license, so I mean I'm, I'm well versed with this sort of thing. But the Vox system that that they have here. It, it works almost, I'm not sure if it's full duplex, it seems like it is, which means you can talk and listen at the same time, but it is so smooth, so clear. It, it's just a really good system, besides the fact that it does a whole bunch of other things that I haven't got into yet. Uh, there's a whole menu system that I don't find the simplest, but um, I certainly find intriguing all the different things they've managed to pack into these headsets. So I'm pretty stoked about uh, discovering that. Now, for my plug, I have a, a new thing that we're doing, and uh, I say we, it's Elizabeth and I. Um, we have a, a new project running now called Backroad Wanders, and this summer we're going to be doing a Jeep adventure in British Columbia and the Yukon. We're going to be filming for a new web series called Northward Quest for Gold, and uh, we'll be exploring uh, gold rush trails and ghost towns of the, the Fraser, the Caribou, and the Klondike gold rushes. So we'll wow. also be producing audio recordings and sharing them throughout the summer with Backroad Wanders podcasts, um, and um, that'll be a it's a whole fun thing for us set up for the summertime. It'll all be free to download, and the videos video series is going to be released in the spring of 2016 on YouTube and and of course at our our website. And our website is backroadwanders.org. And we also have a Facebook page that we put up. So hopefully if you're listening to this, you'll want to drop by our Facebook page and, and check out what we're doing for the summer. So this is neat because we're also going to be doing Adventure Rider Radio on the road again. So we'll be recording, only we're going to be um, running very small because we're only taking a Jeep. We have two dogs and two of us and a Jeep. And uh, our recording equipment and filming equipment will all be in this vehicle. So that's what we're about to head out on. We leave at the end of the month. 
Fantastic. Oh, that, 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 oh, that's awesome. great, Jim. That but there's one good. thing you've got to do for us, mate. What's if that? You, you get to Dawson City, you've got to have the sour toe cocktail. And Elizabeth has got to try the sour toe cocktail. And you know what that is? Remember, Shirley? What does it say? You, you can, can drink, drink it fast. You can drink it slow. But the lips must touch the toe. <laughs> you know what? I, I'm going to tell Beth that you said that. But somehow, I don't think I'm going to convince her to do it. Oh, come on. If the Aussies can do it, the bloody Canadians can do it. Okay, Tough so enough. Shirley, you did it then, right? I did, okay. and it was awful, but I did it. <laughs> <laughs> it was awful, like the taste was awful, or, or the idea. Oh no, well you choose you choose the liquor of your choice, so that was okay. But when the lips do touch the toe, it is really quite disgusting because it is a human toe. Okay, so yeah, for those who don't know, this is supposedly a human toe. What, what's the deal with it, though? It's from some minor. Uh, it's well, not the it's, original. It's, it started off as a guy came into the bar and he'd uh, cut his toe off with a shovel or something and uh, they ended up putting a toe. But people send cut-off toes mm. to this pub in Dawson City <laughs> yeah. to go in the sour toe cocktail. That part of it doesn't bear thinking about. And it's all sort of brown and wizened up and they keep it on salt and you have to put on a silly captain's hat as if it's not bad enough that you've got to drink a drink with a toe in it. And just to add insult to injury, you pay for the privilege. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty wacky up there. Yes, it sounds really attractive. What on earth would ever make you take a drink with a toe touching your lips? I I don't Uh, understand. We were travelling with some young Germans and they'd done it. If the bloody Germans had done it, we had to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I believe they call that peer pressure. Uh, Correct. (laughs) Uh, So that's your mission. I I will pass it on to Elizabeth. I I can't guarantee anything. (laughs) But you can do it, Jim. I'm sorry, you're cutting out. (laughs) Shirley, you you nearly nailed him then. (laughs) Nearly. Not close enough. Well, that about wraps it up. Sorry, Sam, what were you going to say? I was just going to throw in another pun, you know. No no more cutting remarks or... um, Perhaps putting a bit of a polish on and, you know, no, stop me quick. Oh, enough, enough. <laughs> okay. Jim, well, you were saying. Uh, yeah, that about wraps it up. I think that uh, that covers May 2016 for Adventure Rider Radio Raw. And I, I want to say special thanks to our special guests, Susan and Renee. Thank you very much. Yay. Yay. Well done, guys. Well done. Very, very well done. Thank you. The after show party, um, I'm, I, we can't have it here. I'm sorry. So is there somebody else who it's can do it It's got to be tonight? at Renee's place. Yeah. It's got to be at Renee's. Is that okay, Renee? Yeah, we fantastic. We've got lovely weather. Um, I've got a baby with a full nappy, so we're going to have that. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> think that. You know, Renee is out of the way. He is out of the way. Grant and Susan, maybe at your place. Sounds about. I think it's a good idea that my flight's delayed. Yeah. <laughs> Your flight's delayed. You haven't left. It's delayed. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, everyone. After. Bye, everyone. Bye. Talk to you anyway. See you, buddy. Bye, bye. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Great chatting. Thanks, Renee. Well, that wraps up May for Adventure Rider Radio Raw. And don't forget, if you want to hear more, want to hear the other episodes, drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. And you can go forward slash raw or just click on the raw button. 
If you like the show, you like what you're hearing, you want to keep the show coming to you for free, consider dropping by the website and clicking on the donate button. Send us a a little bit of your cash to help keep the show going, help finance things and and keep things running smoothly. We'd certainly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. My name's Jim Martin, and this has been Adventure Rider Radio Raw. See you next month. Thank you.